0: All those who are holding tickets outside are getting as fast as they can. I'm speaking out to you, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside, who seem to be standing, rather reluctant to come in. And we're going to start this very soon.
1: Welcome back to Worthy. My name is John, and I'm Ben, and we are starting off here with the 24th episode of Worthy Woo! by talking about an MGM classic, An American in Paris. That's right, starring Gene Kelly. Woo! Now. We always try to come up with intros here, try to kind of talk about something that's related to the film and related to like kind of the film industry at the time. We've already talked about musicals. We've talked about color in film. So I was trying to like think about exactly what we could talk about. And I came across a really interesting article by Jillian Kelly, who wrote a piece called "A Gene Kelly, the Performing Autor. And it's essentially a little article about how they consider Gene Kelly an auteur in film. And while he's an actor, the word auteur is usually saved for directors, people that usually have a much higher control of their set or the overall product in the film. But I've heard some people refer to a auteur in actors. And that's a, a really confusing word to use for an actor for me because they're 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 very important integral part to a film, obviously that goes without saying. But to call them an auteur is to kind of show how much leverage an actor might have over the final product or the final film. So I wanted to start out, Ben, by asking whether it's even possible, can an actress or an actor be an auteur? Is it possible?
2: I think it, it certainly is. And I I looked at a different example. And I mean, this sounds like a really like, oh, you pick that guy as like the example. But I think of like Leonardo DiCaprio because everything I've ever seen to hear and then what he says is that he's very... He loves the history of film and cinema, and and really being ingrained in it and understanding it. And I think that for him, he wants to take that approach of into his performances and using this idea of film and and the art form itself being the driving force for his own passion, for his drive. So, to me, like that's the first person that comes to mind, and then I think of actors who become directors. And so, obviously, the ones like Mel Gibson come to mind. Then you think of. Uh, you think of Kevin Costner with uh, Dances with Wolves and he won all the Oscars for that. And then I think of of more recent times, I think of like Regina King. And she's been directing her own movies and she's becoming her own artist in, in itself. She's a great actress and she's a, a phenomenal director. So I see this pathway for actors and actresses to become their own directors and filmmakers. So I think it's totally reasonable to say that actors can be auteurs. So then it's about like how... Does their style compare to the auteurs that we think of, especially of modern day? You think of like a, a Wes Anderson, specifically of like that's like the tour auteur of auteurs like right now, and uh, you know it, obviously that doesn't compare enough. But I think being ingrained in film and and understanding the filmmaking process and, and appreciating that with what you're making is essential to being a great director and being just a great filmmaker. And being a filmmaker can be a director be a key grip it can be a sound mixer it it can be multiple positions on a set so auteurs aren't also specifically only for directors you know
1: yeah definitely I want to read out the definition for auteur because it specifically kind of recognizes directors but yeah it can go beyond and I think it's totally possible but according to Wikipedia the definition for an auteur is an auteur is an artist with a distinctive approach usually a film director whose filmmaking control is so unbound but personal that the director is likened to an author of the film which thus manifests the director's unique style or thematic focus. So trying to take that and uh, kind of arrange it or layer it over an actor is is interesting. And I think it's it's e- a lot easier for you to look at Gene Kelly, who's starring in these huge MGM musicals. He's kind of dancing, he's singing. So when you're consistently using those like key talents of yours and your characters are pretty similar, I think you could start to see how people consider him an auteur, where he's got you know, his particular dancing styles. He knows exactly kind of what songs he's good at. And it's interesting to consider whether an artist could be that controlled because a lot of people look at actors and actresses as being objects or controlled, whether it's being controlled by their management, being controlled by the producers making the film, or even down to the final product where it's a director controlling them or the editing room, the editor controlling the performance as well. So I wanted to give a little more Information from Jillian Kelly, who, in the piece of Jean Kelly, the performing auteur, she wrote. In more obvious examples of control, Jerry Mulligan of An American in Paris controls his relationship with Lisa, but is also controlled to a certain extent by Milo Roberts. Since she has money to make his dreams of becoming a painter come true, finally his overpowering love for Lisa allows him to be a man and take control of Milo. By telling her the truth about the relationship with Lisa, undeniably Kelly's characters are dominant in all of his on-screen relationships, rigorously pursuing his love interests until she finally admits she loves him too. So we have a, a plot that seems to be kind of carried through Gene Kelly's films where he's kind of pursuing a woman and maybe a woman's pursuing him. And there's this love triangle where the woman essentially has to learn how to love the man, which, yes, is a little weird. And there's some kind of weird sexes unbalanced moments throughout an American in Paris for sure. But I was really interesting to think about whether it's possible for an actor to be an auteur, because like I said, there's just so much controlling factors to kind of put in there. But when I think of Gene Kelly, and you think of that amazing voice he has and some of his amazing dancing. And I always call it like the penguin dance. He does that classic like kind of back and forth sidestep. I really thought about like, yeah, maybe he is an auteur and maybe he's bringing all this to his films. And we'll talk later about how much he kind of helped make this film and how much he was really dominant on a lot of the dancing and singing aspects. But, yeah, in terms of like other auteurs that are modern, I more think of like almost businessmen who who get their performances based on who they are in a way like I think of The Rock who is just his films are very similar he's always like a working class man but somehow he doesn't look at all like a working class man and then he gets kind of thrown into a situation where he has to become a hero and the, the epic savior of the day right and there's a couple films in there like Scorpion King and and a couple other films in there where like Hercules where he goes kind of beyond that he tries to be something bigger than life because of his character and his size, but for a lot of it, he seems to be working with similar directors and he's making movies that are pretty similar, but just kind of like taken into a new genre or a new step in cinema. And I also think of Johnny Depp, who's just like loves to play characters who kind of takes over the screen and takes over roles that may not have been as outlandish and extreme as, as he kind of brings to it. So it's, it's a really hard word I think to put on an actor or an actress because of just how, focus and direct that is and when you look at directors it's easy to be like oh Wes Anderson does a lot of top-down shots and he loves his like muted color palette with a lot of like pale and pastique colors but to look at an actor you have to like really know their catalog you have to really know that person and maybe you can say that based on their performances and how that carries through. But then there's other actors who, you know, drastically change who they are from character to character. So, Ben, is there anything else that you want to kind of touch on about an auteur and an actor actresses?
2: Yeah, I I think that it's it's interesting that you bring up like The Rock because and and to compare it to Gene Kelly, because you can think of Gene Kelly and becoming this auteur actor and how different that was for 1951, because we're coming we're starting to break out of the studio system. Where, and this is actually the first year in the Oscars where a producer is the one getting the Best Picture Award, specifically not just the studio itself. And to me, that says that the studios are getting less and less control, which means an actor is getting more and more control over what they're doing. But then you think of today with The Rock, and he is the system. You know, he is the reason why you do make a film, why there is a production that goes on. So it's certainly fascinating to think about how we, how, Film transitioned out of this like machine of the studio to allowing actors to essentially be their own freelancers and and to do their own things and pick their own projects, to now go back to, well, a studio can allocate an actor and see their, you know, their their big market, you know, wow factor and how much money they can bring in and, all- and allowing that system to adapt around them. So, it's it, I think it's fascinating and I think that it's cool to see that transition in. The movies that we're watching back then in the '50s, and, and the movies we're watching now, and seeing how that translate and how that's transpired over the years. So I think it's a very free flowing thing. I mean, the movie, the industry right now is is I I've, I've no idea how to really describe it well. I don't know if we're in a, at a peak or if we're in a valley right now, but I think the idea of an auteur is something that should be, you know, considered. For you know, I think it's interesting to call The Rock an auteur because. In a way, he sort of is, you know, if you want to appreciate an artist for being an artist. I mean, all art is art, you know, so it's 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 a fascinating debate. I I think there's a lot to sink our teeth into, but I think we should answer that age old question. Is an American in Paris worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1951?
1: An American in Paris. An American artist finds love in Paris, but almost loses it to
2: conflicting loyalties. American World War II veteran Jerry Mulligan lives in Paris trying to succeed as an artist. His friend and neighbor, Adam Cook, is a struggling concert pianist and longtime associate of French singer Henri Barrel. At the ground floor bar in their building, Henri tells Adam about his girlfriend, Lise Beauvais. Jerry then joins them before going out to try and sell his art. Lonely Harris'
1: Milo Roberts notices Jerry displaying his work in Montmartre. She buys two paintings and takes Jerry back to her apartment to pay him. She invites Jerry to a dinner party she is having that evening. He accepts on the way home and sings I Got Rhythm with local children. Jerry arrives for dinner and discovers he is the sole guest. Offended, he says he is uninterested in being a paid escort but Milo insists she only wants to support him being
2: an artist. They go to a bar where Milo offers to sponsor an art show for Jerry. Milo's friend joins them shortly after. While everyone is talking, Jerry notices a beautiful young girl at the next table. He pretends they know each other and asks her to dance, unaware it is Lise, the girl Henri loves. When Jerry wants her phone number, Lise, uninterested, gives a fake one. Someone at her table misunderstanding the situation innocently says the correct number. Milo, upset that Jerry flirted with another girl in her presence, Wants to leave. She later criticizes him about it. The next day, Jerry calls Lise, but she refuses to see
1: him. Meanwhile, Milo tells Jerry that a collector is interested in his work, and she has arranged a showing later that day. Before the meeting, Jerry goes to the Parfumeur where Lise works. She agrees to a late dinner, but wants to avoid being seen in public. They share a romantic song and dance along the banks of Sienne River. She then rushes off to meet Henri after his performance of "I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise." Henry tells Lise he is going on tour in America and proposes marriage to her.
2: Later, Adam humorously daydreams he is performing Gershwin's Concerto in F for Piano and Orchestra in a concert hall. As the scene progresses, Adam is also the conductor, other musicians, and even an audience member enthusiastically applauding at the end.
1: Milo surprises Jerry by renting him an art studio and says she is planning an exhibition for him within three months' time. Jerry initially refuses the studio, but accepts on condition he will repay Milo when his work sells. After a month of courting, Lise abruptly runs away when she and Jerry arrive at the apartment building by taxi. Jerry complains about this to Adam, who is shocked to realize that both Henri and Jerry love Lise. Henri and Jerry later discuss they both love Lise, but they are unaware that it's the same person.
2: That night, Jerry and Lise reunite by the CN. Lise says she's marrying Henri the next day and going to America with him. Lise feels duty-bound to Henri because he protected her during the war. The two proclaim their love for each other before parting. A dejected Jerry invites
1: Milo to the art student's masked ball. At the party, they run into Henri and Lise. Jerry admits to Milo that he loves Lise, and Henri overhears Jerry and Lise saying goodbye and realizes the truth. As Henri and Lise drive away, Jerry daydreams about being with Lise and all over Paris to George Gershwin's An American in Paris. His reverie is broken by a car horn. Connery brings Lise back to him. The lovers race to each other and embrace as the music swells. An American in Paris was directed by Vincent Minnelli. Written by Alan J. Lerner. Produced by Arthur Freed. Music by George Gershwin and Conrad Salinger. Cinematography by Alfred Gilks. Film editing by Adrian Fazan, Art direction by E. Preston Ames and Cedric Gibbons. Set direction by Edwin B. Willis. And costume design by Ori Kelly. And American in Paris stars Gene Kelly as Jerry Mulligan. Leslie Caron as Lise Bovert. Oscar Levant as Adam Cook. Joyce Guterri as Henri Borrell. And Nina Folk as Milo Roberts. So Ben, an MGM musical, would you S-wonderful. say? Wonderful. Wonderful.
2: Smiling. <laughs> <laughs> would you say this is the first real musical that we watched though? I actually was thinking about that and it definitely is cuz you think I think the musicals that we have to consider as musicals, I'm putting air quotes as I'm saying that are the, the Broadway Melody. I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> yeah, the Broadway Melody, yeah, the Great Zigfield, which are like the two full musicals and I also think you have to include Going My Way. Also in there, obviously, all quiet on the Western Front, one of the best musicals ever. Oh, but <laughs> classic! Yeah, classic. Getting <laughs> all kidding aside, but yeah, this is definitely the first like full fledged musical. This is a, it's kind of eerie too because the first movie we ever watched together was Singing in the Rain. So this is the movie preceding. Wait, uh, that's the first movie we've ever watched together. Yeah, it's the first movie we watched in college. We were in film class together. That was Jesus. Yeah. How do you remember that? I <laughs> oh, listen. I remember a lot of I'm things. I'm shocked that you remember that. A lot of you
1: <laughs> wow i'm shocked right now i didn't even know that
2: yeah well it was in film class so i don't even know if that really counts for being the first film we watched together but regardless this is like a big step forward for the oscars for us in this podcast where this is the second colored film after gone with the wind it's the first full-fledged musical it's definitely has all the wow factors but does it have the substance to make it really concrete and solid It's really
1: interesting. I didn't even think of going my way as a musical, but you're right. Like there's so many musical numbers in that they just don't really add to the plot. You know, they're kind of like there and then they have like the musical singing competition, basically, which is the only factor in the plot. But other than that, it's like such it's just a vehicle. I mean, if you listen to the episode, that's a vehicle for Bing Crosby. And it's not much of a overarching big grand musical like we have here with an American in Paris. So and then Broadway Melody, I mean, that's barely a movie, honestly. Let, <laughs> let's be real. Yeah. And then some people even uh, consider what's, what's the one I'm blanking on? The here? Great Zigfield? Exactly. Yeah. Some people would even consider the Great Zigfield musical, but in no means would I ever call that a musical, right? Like, do you, you do you agree with that?
2: Well, it's, it, and I think that's the interesting part is that it's not a musical in the sense of that it it's not the musical musical aspects of it don't drive the narrative. They're just like, hey, these are musical numbers that that zigfield would have put on during the zigfield follies and like that's the attraction to it yeah and i think that's what makes this interesting is because it features some of those moments where it's like these musical numbers don't necessarily belong in the in the film plot but they're like kind of cool like set pieces and they're cool like little editing choices that they do and then the whole ballet at the end is exactly like a pretty girls like a melody in the sense of like it's just as one not it's one huge set piece and then it's it just meant to be like, wow, look at this. It's like the We're, showcase of the film. Right. Yeah. But this time in American Paris, like this has more to do with the plot versus where a pretty girl is like a melody, which is a great song. It, that's more just like another Zigfield tune. And it's like, OK, this is like what a, a Zigfield production would have looked like.
1: Yeah, and definitely. And I think it's a great place to start is our introduction in the beginning of the film where, boom, right away, we get our title cards, which I thought was pretty cute with a little... You know, invitation—the kind of—it's uh it's almost like a note or a, uh, a postcard. Basically, it's, it's kind of our title cards, which was sweet and it was nice to see color back in our lives again. It's been so long. I'm a huge fan of color in films. I mean, I love our our great black and white films that we've seen so far, but there's something about this juicy color, and especially in American Paris, these primary colors. And we're introduced to our our three so and so main characters. I think you could kind of lean more on. Adam and and Jerry being our main characters, but we have Gene Kelly as Jerry Mulligan and Oscar Levant as Adam Cook, who's like the piano player in Paris who lives right below Jerry, who's our painter. And he's another American, too. Another American, yes. Thank you. And of course, we have Adam's friend, who is a local singer named Henri and... I First of all, love that they call him Henri, because us Americans would be like, it's Henry. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, it's Henri. Henri. And you probably noticed from our description that we're pretty awful at pronoun- <laughs> I pronouncing. Did French. I did take French. In yeah. <laughs> and I had to give you shit for that, because I thought you'd be better at this. and help me out more. But yeah, what do you think of this introduction? I thought it was really cool to kind of have this camera float and... You see a lovers and they're like, oh, no, that's not who that's not who I'm talking about. You know that's not me. And they continue to move on. What do you think of this opening?
2: Yeah, well, first thing was, oh, man, it's great to see like an actual depiction of Paris compared to what we had before in Emile Zola, which is just shit. (laughs) But that's not here nor there. Uh, Yeah, I love the crane shots. I love the the opening narration and and introducing each, each of the characters that way, I think. One, they break the fourth wall like a few times in this opening narration. And they do it throughout the film a few times as well. So I thought that was interesting. I really loved the uh like Jerry's I don't I it's hard to call it an apartment. It's like kind of the oh size of the God. room that we're sitting we in. We need to right talk now. about that because as a New Yorker,
1: like such a relatable thing. I mean, yes. it's not as exaggerated, but I wrote in my notes here that like I could literally watch Jerry like set up his apartment on loop for hours. It is so yeah, like, entertaining where, to watch it. Yeah,
2: figure out where like this rope goes to pull this lever and like how that
1: gets this to go off. Yeah. Open it, up the closet, it's got the dresser attached, is it the window and drop that down? Yeah, it's, it's like so a cool. Rube
2: like Goldberg machine.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think this is a, immediately right away, you can just see how good gene kelly is in action the way he moves his body and he really makes this like an opening dance piece with no music no accompanying score really and he just makes this into like a mini dance that has nothing to do with him just the plot really it's just him setting up his apartment it's a cool look into his life as a broke in quotes painter in paris
2: yeah so that's where i think i want to ask my first big question about this is just about gene kelly and is it his physical ability that makes his performance great, or do you think it's his actual acting that makes it great, or is well, it both? It can be both. I it's think.
1: interesting because I honestly, I honestly think the voiceover in the beginning by him is like it's pretty clunky. Like his performance in that opening, it's kind of goofy, and it's definitely the tone of the movie to kind of be lighthearted. But it's not the best like line de- delivery. It feels like they could have done a couple more takes for some of those lines. But then immediately when he has that, he just has that presence on screen. I mean, one, he's he's a fucking gorgeous guy. I mean, that goes (laughs) without saying he is so, so attractive. And he he like balances this feminine and masculinity like so well. I don't understand. You notice like the three main men in this film, like predominantly wear makeup. Like it's really heavy and it's really noticeable. I don't know if that's just because we're so used to black and white films going on this journey or now switching over to color is it just more noticeable that we're seeing this like blue eyeshadow that he wears essentially throughout the movie but yeah I just think it's his presence it's the way he moves his body and obviously has a beautiful voice so yeah what, what do you think of Gene Kelly
2: yeah I, I think his physical ability is like the number one attribute to his performance I mean the way he yes the way he like effortlessly moves around the set the his dancing his tap dancing is fantastic I think um I I do think that his his acting scenes, it does seem very natural. I think that's because his body is able to flow so well with the character. I think that he's able to pick up on that. But at the same time, I think that he's also playing a... And it's not like, hey, Jerry's this big Hollywood star, but he is supposed to be, I'm this lead actor in this musical. And I think that is a different attitude and approach it's take versus like maybe like a more indie role something that's more subtle that requires more emotion he is allowed to be boisterous and loud with his body with, without actually having to be loud with his voice
1: yeah i mean i think he shines in these musicals because of that definitely and like could you imagine him in like all about eve no he would be like no s- he would just stick out like a sore thumb immediately
2: right yeah he would and i think that was Uh, just upon like, I mean, I'm not a Gene Kelly aficionado, but just researching and learning a little bit more about his history. You know, he, he loved these roles. He, he loved the ballet. He was very much into the stage work and, and and the movement on film. But there were times it seemed during his career, he'd be like, well, I want to play like, you know, and I'm going to say the straight man more like the more uh, not, it's not a musical. I think there's a movie he did close after this, where he was more like a detective. So I would actually be interested to see some of those some of those movies where he's not essentially in a musical, but he's playing like the straight man detective or like just some like kind of a quote, normal guy, uh, because I think that he could do that. And I think that would show off his you know range and abilities. But, you know, that's my own deep dive that I have to do. But, and I think that he has those chops and I'm sure it's all there, but he is predominantly known as being this dancer. And and, and you only see these like these clips and, and, and stills of him in movement from all these movies that he's in.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, I found his character really relatable. I mean, not only is he living this lovely life, I, I really found this whole film to be oddly relatable. I mean, we have a character with the last name Robert, so that's that's <laughs> easy easy to identify, and there's similarity there. Probably, the I think, the first time maybe that we've seen that last name appear in these Best Picture winners. But later on in the film, we have a foreign exchange student that Jerry makes fun of a lot and how, you know, he, he knows exactly what they are. He, she, he knows that she's uh, uh, on her third year is what he says. And that's when everyone goes abroad. And I went abroad when I was in high school. So I was that snotty kid taking art classes (laughs) and not in Paris, but in London. And when I was in London, I I went abroad and, and went to Paris as well. So I had a really like amazing time when I was there for like four or five days. So I have that connection again I don't really have a love triangle in my life to, to directly connect it to, but this film just felt like... You we- don't love me? <laughs> I do love you. <laughs> that is our love triangle, my girlfriend and you. It, it felt like weirdly relatable where there was like a lot of things in here and he lives in this small apartment and my apartment is like a bowling alley is what we always say. So I just found these little things across this movie to be like, whoa, this feels like weirdly kind of related and connected to me. I'm, I'm not a starving artist, but, you know, we're, we're we're trying hard with this podcast. I'm trying to do other creative things. So <laughs> I kind of related to Jerry and I, I really liked him as a character. There's some iffy things about the men in this movie, but we'll definitely get to that. But the best way to really break this movie down is. Is to not really go through the story because the story is really simple. It's why the logline's really simple because it is. It's essentially about three men who are kind of caught in a situation of two of them loving each other, uh, loving the same woman, right? So we are loving each other, or loving each other. That yeah. would have been
2: interesting. But yeah, I think it's a good idea to bring up the the script and story because usually I think when we do these podcasts, we have a good chunk of quotes that we like really want to read off. I only have three, and two of them have to do with the same exact scene. I don't know how many you lines you really want to point out but this isn't like a this isn't like an all about eve where the dialogue is like oh that's great or oh my god i can't believe she just said that or you really got to sink your teeth into it where this is more just the visual aspect of filmmaking that's what's driving it it's the visuals and i think
1: the best way to break this down is by the visuals and the music and that's kind of breaking this film down by its musical acts so like we said we have the description we have two men who are falling in love with the same woman And before that, we really kind of kickstart that plot, we have the introduction showing who these people are, kind of introducing you to each person. And then we have a moment together where Jerry and Henri meet because of Adam. Adam is a friend of this French singer named Henri, and they kind of introduce each other. Uh, Jerry is a broke artist, and Adam is a broke uh, piano player who's just trying to make a living in Paris like Jerry. So they kind of relate to that, that bond there. And they are in a little coffee shop, which, one, we should definitely talk about the sets in this film. like These really big, grand sets that are supposed to replicate Paris because they couldn't really film in Paris. And we have this kind of opening musical where we have them kind of singing and performing and using props throughout the restaurant. What did you think of the sets, and what did you think of this uh, by Strauss, our first musical act?
2: Well, first, I love, and I, I don't know if you remember, there's like this coffee and milk pour. That they at the like right when they get there. Yeah, but it's yeah. like it's like two different things. So one has coffee. One has milk and you pour them both at the same at the time. Same time and I was like, I was like, wow, that I really want that kind of thing. So uh, to my girlfriend, if you're listening, I really want a <laughs> coffee and milk pour so I can pour them both at the same time evenly. <laughs> so. I, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think they interact really well with the set. Again, like this is a musical. So the if this piece is there, it's meant to be used. It's meant to be grabbed onto and, and thrown around, whether it's a chair or table a cloth or you know another st- you know bystander in the scene like they're going to be involved in it and I think that it really opens up it, it, it's a good immediate showcase to the talents of, of the actors and, and it's like okay like this is the fun you know happy-go-lucky kind of style that this movie is going for
1: yeah it's a really cute opening where they have you know all of them dancing and they're singing a cute little song together where they're kind of taking these props around and it's interesting because I found the sets to be really cool. I mean, just fascinating to see how big these sets are. And it feels like you're on like a universal backlot. and really cool to see just how big these sets are but at the same time they feel really artificial like they feel fake they don't, you don't really have that verisimilitude where you like feel like you're in this world it feels like it's believable it very much feels like a lot of MGM musicals where it's it's all fabrication in a way it's it's so over expressive and over designed and all the food in the film looks fake like the grapes and the tablecloths like everything just looks completely structured and and completely like perfect which in a way is almost off-putting but in the same way it's like perfect for a musical this kind of fantasy plastic world that we live in Um, but what I didn't mention is our first kind of introduction to Lise or Lisa played by uh, Leslie Karen Caron I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name don't ask me
2: yeah, French guy over here. Come on. <laughs> well, it's interesting also you bring up the, the Paris aspect because they did want to film in Paris for part of it and there's some Paris stuff. Like it, the opening of the film, yeah. Yeah, but I think when we're getting to this introduction to Lisa, Lisa, L-I-S-E, so I don't even know how to properly pronounce that one. But yeah, it's cool because it is a good – because it's not just like, okay, we get the introduction of the set that they're in, but then we get these like different like big splashy color palette sets that she's in for her first dance – and I think that really showcases, one, the technicolor aspect of this film, but also kind of the shadiness of the guys in the movie as well. Definitely. The super bright primary colors where we have
1: her dancing and she's phenomenal. Supposedly, supposedly she didn't even speak English. She only knew French and she was mainly a dancer and not an actress. So her movement is, like, incredible. The way they do that kind of ballet, tippy toes on her very top of her feet, is it's really stunning. And the cinematography is It really, like, will blow your eyes out. It's insane where she's wearing, like, this insanely bright yellow dress and contrasting it with, like, a green background. And the editing is super expressive. It almost feels like a trippy 60s Beatles music video where we're kind of drastically cutting between these scenes and how much they're kind of popping because every scene is, like, a different contrast uh, primary color. And it's really fascinating. It's a really cool way to introduce a character. But, yeah, like you said... It's almost ruined in a way because this is all explained by Henri, who's like saying how much I love this girl to Adam. And, you know, even though they're really good friends, this is the first time he's telling uh, his good friend that he's in love with this woman. And it's an interesting way to describe someone and show her not by like a a particular acting performance, but by her movement. and, And that kind of shows you who this person is and how much he loves her. But at the same time, he's in a way... Henri's describing that like she reads books and and how that's pretty great. And then on the other side, Adam, which is a direct quote, literally says, did all that reading make her moody? And there's a lot of lines throughout this film that just feel really sexist and, and almost derogatory towards women. And as is, this is as if applying that like if a woman reads too much that she'll know too much and be moody and push back against men. And I don't know where this comes from, if it's like the screenwriting, if it's like the producing kind of aspect to it. But it really some off-putting lines that are like casually thrown in throughout this movie.
2: Yeah, and, and Henri says she has great vitality, joie de vivre. I, fuck the French that I took. <laughs> she loves to go out and have fun and dance. She would dance all night. She's an enchanting girl, Adam. Not really beautiful, and yet she has great beauty. And this whole thing is coming from Henri's like subconscious. I'm thinking about her, where he's like, "Oh yeah, she's just this beautiful girl, and she just loves to just to have fun." And it's like, like, is she just that to you? Is she yeah, just like an object to you? Yeah. Like, like seeking this like fun aspect. And I think that even Henri admits in his little intro in the beginning, he's like, "Well, I'm an old guy, but I have this young spirit still at the same time." So it's like, like, listen, buddy, are you just trying to recreate your teens? Are you actually <laughs> care about this girl? Which is also fishy because of how their whole relationship started because he protected her in the war and like took her in when she was a child and she's 19 in the movie. So if the, if this is 1951, five years before, or six years before that. So she would have been 13 at the end of world war two, if that's what they're trying to say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to go too deep. Into- <laughs> <laughs> so like,
2: like that, like that's the whole thing is like, Andre's like, yeah, we, well, and he's like, well, she took like, she's the one that fell in love with me. I'm not the one that fell in love with her initially. Yeah, they really go out of their way to expressively kind of say,
1: no, 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 she's of age, she's 19, she's younger, but she's of age. and Young girl, but 19. <laughs> we also have to mention that her dancing in the film, which supposedly was kind of instructed by Gene Kelly and his assistant of how she should perform this dance scene, which was with a chair and it's... I mean, some people might think this is very suggestive, but it's pretty suggestive, especially for 1951, where she's almost like grinding along the chair and she's dancing and her dress kind of like lifts up and you can kind of see like the undergarment under the dress. And it's really clear and it's it is very sexual. I I mean, what do you think about that and making her I mean, it is his fantasy almost in a way. So it's like you could kind of see that and. I don't know. It was, it's cool. Yeah. But also a little odd. Well, actually, again.
2: she gave an interview uh, only a few years ago. She said, Gene Kelly had an assistant called Carol Haney. She was a very sensual dancer, and she worked a lot on the choreography of Gene Kelly. She taught me that number, and all I did was imitate her movements. I must admit, it was rather sexy looking. However, I was only dancing with a chair, but the person from the censorship bureau thought that the number looked too sexy. Gene was asked to make me do it again and tone down the sex appeal of it, but what could go on for chair? Not very much, and then another thing you fu- that upon researching from uh, the American Film Institute uh about this movie is that a memo to MGM heads to MGM studio head lewis B. Mayer from the PCA informed Mayer that the PCA had only one objection to Learner's recently submitted script. The memo advised that it should be clear that no illicit sex affair existed between Jerry and Milo, and then no additional censorship problems were encountered with the with the script. So it is interesting that like. That her dancing with chair is can be looked at as a problem as being too sexual, but that Jerry and this older woman is like, no, they can't have a sexual affair. But that woman's not even married, and Jerry's not attached to someone, so like, why can't that happen? But we can allow a nineteen-year-old girl be objectified and loved by older men
1: yeah there's things that just don't make any sense when it comes to the board and what they will allow and what they won't allow and i think that's that's really all 19 year olds
2: they're probably with oh god
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's probably true yeah it definitely is true moving to the story like we said it's not really too deep I and mean, we have our introduction of our three characters from that point on jerry still hasn't met lisa at least and he's kind of a struggling artist. Like we said, he says he's really broke. He lives in a really small apartment and he's just trying to sell his artwork in the street where he comes across Milo Roberts, who's this very like elegant rich woman before he meets Milo. He's confronting that foreign exchange student from America. And he...
2: and before that he runs into Winston Churchill. What? Really? Yeah. There's an old guy. So I, I'm glad that I just want to talk about this really quickly. So Churchill was a painter, After he was prime minister, he went to France and did a lot of painting.
1: I had no idea.
2: Yeah, yeah. So they had a little nod to that where uh, Jerry's walking in the streets of Paris like, I'm Jerry Mulligan. That's not him, though, is it? It's not him. He passes an old guy smoking a cigar and Jerry does a double take like, who? Who's that guy? Wow, that's so interesting because I've seen
1: this movie twice now and I'm like, I keep trying to watch that scene. I'm like, what does this mean? Like, (laughs) yep. So he like walks by a painter on the bridge and he like makes a face. You don't see what the painter is even painting. And he makes a face where it's just like, hmm, like to me, not knowing that's supposed to be Winston Churchill. It's like, wow, that's my competition. Like, damn, that's a pretty good painting. But now it's like a complete inside joke that I just do not get. <laughs> yeah. And I that's so <laughs> funny because I just took a completely different... Ah, wow, wow. That's yeah. interesting. No, it,
2: it, it, it's it's just like a little funny thing. But yeah, so he goes on to to meet Milo, who I love... Uh, Nina Folk uh, plays her in the movie, and she's great. I, I honestly do think that, like, it would have been more interesting if she was the love interest and if he did end up with her at the end of the movie because I think that she actually show and maybe this is because of Leslie Karen's character like one she's she's like a new actress to this and they didn't fully flush her out. But I'm like I kinda would interesting to see like he doesn't end up with Lise and he ends up with Milo and and his reaction to that and Jerry be and Jerry's accepting and like oh my god this woman loves me as an artist, not because of like I'm a great dancer, I can I can sweet talk her
1: (laughs) Yeah. Which is another interesting thing. The fact that they're saying her dancing is too sexual but Jerry can have a, a relationship, which is a essentially a paid relationship until later on where she kind of funds his art. And they directly reference, like, Jerry at one point is just like, I'm not an escort. Like, there's plenty of men that you can pay to do that. Like, I'm not going to yeah, do that. Yeah, like, which,
2: that wasn't sensitive. Yeah,
1: I found that pretty, like, progressive. But they particularly didn't want them to sleep together because then... Which is so weird because it's not like he's married to Lisa and Lisa. Like he meets Milo way before he even knows who Lisa is. Yeah. So it's just like, why would they even care if they slept together? Is a single woman? Is a single man? Like, well, what? What is going on that that would even be objectable? Maybe it's because of her age. I'm thinking like well, the age difference there or something. I well, don't know. that's
2: what I want to bring up because essentially what this movie and what you know Hollywood is saying is that it's okay for an older man who took in this a girl during the war and then uh, when she gets of uh, just of the right age that that's okay if they're together but if an older if a, a younger guy and an older woman and she's not old she's late 30s maybe yeah. she's supposed to be yeah, and like but that's like no we can't have that and that's like and that's like a really big issue and, and just to kind of go on a little tangent here like you think about today with like licorice pizza people are wild are yeah. all up in arms because of the main character she's 25 and the kid is 15 and they fall in love but that is actually just a commentary of it being the reverse of an older guy and a younger girl which no one has had issues with for years
1: for years and years yeah and she offers to buy his paintings she doesn't have enough money so she basically like brings him back to his apartment and here we have like another weird sexist line where he walks in and like truly sees how rich she is like she has a really nice car but she walks into he walks into this mansion and he really sees just how much she has and he basically flat out doesn't basically he's flat out suggests like, oh, like, are you have a rich husband or a rich father? Because that's clearly the only way you could be this rich. And it's just a blatantly sexist line where it's like, why? Why do you got to make Jerry that way? He's just a cool painter. He's just a cool, hardworking guy who's broke and he likes to dance and sing. Why is he also <laughs> to be fucking sexist? I, I
2: don't know. They do that. And then when he um when him and milo go to like that 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 dance bar after like after this scene where she's when they're like okay well let's go out and let's go have some drinks he meets elise or doesn't meet her he sees her at the table next to drags uh, her away <laughs> drags her away and it's basically like milo like fuck off this girl's more beautiful than you exactly and, like, like it it's it's so problematic because jerry just becomes this like you know girl hungry guy you know out of nowhere out of nowhere no
1: interest in women until all of a sudden he like spots her one table over and is immediately like oh my god i need to have this." yeah
2: and up to that point you really like jerry's character and then after that you're like oh is jerry not a good guy whoa
1: yeah it's just and it's definitely totally supposed to be played for humor like he takes her away and what the hell are you doing like I do not want this she makes it very clear and he makes she, she says I don't
2: like get away from you." yeah
1: literally and and he made a joke basically about his wife and how to assume or to imply that the other people at the table know that he's not trying to like take this girl away and you know engage with her in which any way. would
2: not fly today
1: not fly at all and he makes a joke being like oh I lied about the wife like that was just so we could be alone which is so incredibly fucking weird and creepy and it's disturbing in fact I mean they're in a public place it's not like he's like dragging her away but it's it's extremely aggressive for a character who's so like lovable and sweet and nice and who sings and is friends with a bunch of children in Paris but is also like extremely just aggressive when it comes to this woman it's,
2: it's very odd stalks her at, her at her place of work at the perfume store <laughs> yeah, and is exactly. like insistent like meet with me and like then she does and I guess she does because he's so smooth about it And that's the other side that doesn't really make sense is she doesn't
1: have enough lines to really kind of build up her character of what she wants, what she's even like, what she's even interested in. Like they just flat out have to say, oh, I'm in love with Henry. But then there's this turn where she's like, "Okay, I'll go on a date with him. But you don't really understand why at all. Like There's no really reasoning. It's like he just tries enough and she's like, yes. And basically (laughs) implying like if a woman says no, just keep trying and she'll eventually say yes.
2: Right. Exactly. Which is just disturbing <laughs> in and of itself but in a fucking musical
1: a happy gay musical <laughs> literally bright gay musical like and they um, just are I don't know pulling these strings it's it's bizarre it's this really weird yin yang this film has
2: yeah it, it certainly is but then but then on the flip side you have these like really beautiful moments where they're dancing by the river which it's not that much singing and so much dialogue but they have this really beautiful dance which kind of it, it's a it's a throwback to like almost silent films where it's just allowing the body to tell the story. And, and I think that's, what's beautiful in this movie. And, and those moments is like the ballet. And I'm not a, I, you can ask a lot of people in my life. I'm not a good dancer. I don't (laughs) like dancing, but this makes me appreciate that art and, and, and how dancing can be so emotive. And it's a really beautiful moment. And then it's juxtaposed with like the, Hey, you're a young girl, an older guy. And that's just how it works.
1: It's fascinating because it's like as soon as they have this performance together it's like boom there's the chemistry like there is why she's in this film there is like why that they work so well together as a couple they're like dancing together he's this amazing voice he's really singing the song i think it's probably my favorite song in the film not my favorite performance but it's really, really romantic.
2: A beautiful, like, under the bridge, moonlight. It's really pretty. Yeah, I think, if anything, the last few movies have taught us that dancing can bring people together, and alcohol makes you evil. <laughs> so maybe Broderick Crawford in in uh, All the King's Men should have just danced a little bit. He would have been okay. And he probably wouldn't have gotten elected, he probably, he probably Right, that's true. But we're <laughs> on an American in, in Paris. So, yeah, so they, they dance, and now this becomes this love triangle, and, and this is where the movie kind of, like, okay, this is the movie, and it's not like too much plot movement. Yeah, they're like, that's and,
1: the plot. We're gonna sit with. We're it just for gonna a little
2: do a, a few more numbers. We're gonna have this like four minute concerto and F with of just Adam, and it's like, okay, like cool. Adam's like a really good. Yeah, do you want to talk like, about
1: that, or and talk about Oscar Levan and, and well, his well, I think
2: he actually gives the best m- moment in the entire in the entire movie, and it's a, a little bit towards the end, and it actually leads into your favorite uh, musical number. So towards the end of the movie, uh, he, he meets up. Um, he, he, I think it's first Henri that he meets up with and Henri says, yeah, I'm going to marry this girl, Lisa. And then he kind of puts it together. He's like, oh my God, him and Jerry, it's the same girl. And what he starts doing, he's like, he says uh, to George, the way he George, a uh, Brandy. And then when the then when Jerry comes to the scene, he's like George, another brandy. Yeah, he he's just, drinking and he lights two cigarettes at the same time, and he's just like nervously freaking out. And then at one point, he says, uh, "Did I ever tell you the time I gave a command performance for Hitler?" And while he's smoking <laughs> the two cigarettes, drinking coffee and brandy, he's like such a nervous wreck because he doesn't want this whole secret to be found out that the two of the guys that yeah. he's friends with are both in love with the same woman and they have no idea that he's it is
1: he's definitely the funniest character in the film he's like the comic relief character and it's really funny to see that like being really fleshed down in a film like this and not only is he hilarious in this in this scene like you're describing but earlier on when we first meet him and we meet Henri and they're kind of at uh, their morning coffees together in that small Parisian cafe It's really funny because the the people that are the servers, the hosts there, they keep giving everything to Henri and they're not giving anything to Adam. Like they'll give (laughs) coffee, they'll give coffee to Henri and Adam will be like going to give them the cup and the guy just walks away and they come and drop off food and the guy wants and Adam wants to order something and he walks away again. Like they just keep ignoring him, which is really sweet and he has like such a, really charm to him you know like even in the beginning he kind of like shits on himself when he has his own voiceover introducing himself saying like the like this face doesn't look like much like this slubby face like he basically like puts down on himself but really this is such a charming performance and he's really almost like the hidden heart throughout this movie because I mean yes he has that objectable line in the beginning but he's like a sweet guy and you have like his fun you know piano numbers that you have with with uh,
2: Jerry here, and
1: he's just trying to be a good friend, which is like a nice thing to see. Yeah,
2: you know? the La sequence when it's in Adam's apartment, like that's a that's a really great, uh really great scene and dance number. And I also love when they get out of his daydream for the concerto and a- F piece, where he goes to his piano and it has an ice bucket on the top. And you're like, oh, maybe like a bottle of wine or, or champagne. He pulls out a Coke bottle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's I, funny. I just thought it
2: was like kind of cool. The, con-
1: the concerto is odd. Like, do you think it even should be in this movie?
2: Well, I, it it doesn't really make sense, and it seems more like a... um, it, it would have been hard, I guess, to do on a stage, but what it is is more of like a, an homage, I think it's to a Buster Keaton movie. And yeah, I, that makes sense. And, I, and I'm forgetting what... um, oh man, I, I wish I'd written it down, but I remember reading that it was like an homage to a Buster Keaton movie where Buster Keaton played all these different roles in this one scene, and it's basically like Adam doing that himself where he's the c- conductor, he does the xylophones, he does... Uh, I think a few drum parts and then he's also in the audience giving like the uh, Citizen Kane just standing clap really like yeah like let's go type dramatic of thing. clap yeah right It just doesn't add anything to the story no it, it really does and it's
1: not funny enough to like really keep in it's like cute it's like something you would see like nowadays on YouTube or TikTok they'd be like oh that's funny like the guy plays every single part like it's cute it just doesn't really add or progress the story in any way and it really just feels like it's there to have another Gershwin song Another little piece to play, something to, to have on the soundtrack, and, and just something to kind of pad time on the film. Because, I mean, this isn't incredibly short, but it is a shorter film for what we've been used to for our Best Picture winner so far. Yeah,
2: it goes by really, I mean, it's I think it's an hour 53 minutes, and it goes by really quickly um, for what it is. And that also has to do with the last 20 minutes where there's just no dialogue It's all. It's all dancing and we're going to get there. I think I think there's a lot to talk about. But yeah, this movie at the pace wise is pretty quick and, and which is really nice and it's refreshing for many reasons. And I think that it can tell the story efficiently, but then at the same time, and I brought this to the beginning is like, is that enough? Is that enough substance for a Best Picture winner where it doesn't it doesn't feel like a weight to it as some other ones?
1: No, it, it definitely doesn't feel that heavy and, and dramatic, but. Does it have to be? That is, like I think, a major question. And I think it's a major question when we get to its big it, big competitor later on in the podcast where we'll kind of discuss who is the, the kind of head-to-head competitor here with An American in Paris for Best Picture. Uh, but continuing on from the scene where we have, you know, Adam being really nervous, trying to make sure that neither of these men know that they're in love with the same woman... And it leads to a musical act which is about their love and, and they don't really realize, which is really interesting, that it's about the same woman and this is a song called Swonderful or S-Wonderful or whatever you want exactly. to... <laughs> Swonderful. Exactly. Uh, Swonderful. You love his booming voice and they really have a, a great chemistry together as well. You know, you have this like really dramatic uh, Henri's almost like vaudeville style singing in the very beginning like he talks about how he hates jazz and he he feels like more of that old school kind of singing song well
2: i felt like his um his was it, i'll build a stairway to paradise yeah. that, that felt like a another like i felt like a Zigfield kind of performance yes, definitely and number
1: yeah with the walking up the stairs each step glows as he walks which is a cool little just like nod to who this person is we don't really learn too much about henri and I think that's something that you can kind of criticize this film with is just how surface level a lot of the characters and characterization is for the film.
2: Well, that, yeah, I think that goes for everything at surface level. Yeah, um, But there actually, there is one aspect that I, I wanted to touch on that I thought was really interesting, and in this, in this ties into Henri because, yeah, he's very simple, and I think that what you're focused on is the fact that he he essentially grooms this girl. And <laughs> Which what, is all off screen, so it's yeah. not like,
1: you know, gl- it's not glorified that he's doing it but he suggests basically that he did right right?
2: but he also admits he's like well i didn't mean to but she like kind of fell in love with me type of thing but i think what's really fascinating about it is it happened during world war ii that he took her in and it's like did he take her in because her parents were part of like the french resistance or is it because she was jewish and actually in that same interview i was talking before with leslie karen she brings up the fact that people nowadays have brought up, like, is, is she Jewish? Is Lee supposed to be Jewish? And she says, I liked it very much, but I was extremely surprised when people involved in that production said, of course, Lise lost her parents because of the Jewish situation. I just fell down on the floor. It absolutely not occurred to any of us during the film. This is something very modern that the world became aware of little by little after the end of the war. But in the 1950s, when we started, the plight of the Jews during the war was absolutely not in people's minds. It took many, 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 many years for survivors of the Shoah to come and tell their stories. So I think that's, I think that's a really interesting fact and point to be like, well, we weren't necessarily aware of it. And I think that's fine to not talk about it. But it shows where the mindset of people were still at this time where it was, I think it was very naive. It's a very naive thing to allow this like younger girl to be with the older guy and not allow the older woman to be with the younger guy, especially in a movie before *In All About Eve* uh, for Best Picture, where it was about age and an older woman being with a younger guy. So it, it, it's certainly fascinating that they didn't have that kind of foresight, but I think now if you apply that to it, it's like oh, like Honore did a noble thing that he took in this girl because of World War II and to protect made, her. Yeah, to yeah. protect her. But then he grooms her and she falls in love with him and that's it's, that
1: that's really interesting and that's something i thought about but then i'm like well yeah like you said they're probably just like against hitler's regime and they're in france and they're like the freedom fighters but the film just doesn't care enough to really go deep into it because it, the film doesn't really care that much about
2: telling you who lisa or lisa's is really you is know? it that it doesn't care or it doesn't find it necessary to
1: well I think it's both. I mean, it doesn't care because they definitely could. And I mean, maybe she had more lines and they saw her performance. She's not a English speaker directly. And maybe they're like, let's cut it back and really let her shine in the last 20 minutes to really kind of dance and show their love that way. So it feels like both a creative decision and also like a decision that you make while making a film. Right. Like where you're like, "Mm, maybe like we could have more scenes with her kind of directly talking with Jerry and. Explaining their love to each other more and bonding. But at the same time that may have brought the film down because of her performance. So it's hard. It's really hard to know for sure. I mean, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I I think that they decided out of necessity that it wasn't fully important and that the whole, at the point of this film is to showcase Gene Kelly. It's supposed to be about this big musical and it's not supposed to be this like political, emotional drama. It's supposed to be, hey, happy, fungal, lucky, an American in Paris, Gene Kelly, bright stars, bright lights. Sure. Broadway on. on Sure. I
1: mean, a scene describing her like time during the war and how much like Henri, helped her and really saved her like would drastically improve her character and in a way drastically improve the plot of the film because you'd be like kind of torn between Henri and, and Jerry and be like well maybe this wasn't just this creepy grooming situation like maybe this really just happened naturally like he saved her from a horrible act just like you said like a horrible time in the world and and maybe that just happened naturally but we don't all know because it's previous yeah. before the film starts so we don't really get that information
2: you get like little hints of dialogue that like that is the case but it's not enough to fully believe it because you're still left with like okay you're, you're still an older guy and she's still 19 mm-hmm. and also at the same time like Gene Kelly is supposed to be a somewhat younger guy but even that seems odd in and of itself
1: yeah. Before we get to the final dance number, I wanted to mention a couple things. So in, in the story, we have Milo, uh, the rich woman who kind of helps fund and uh, gets uh, Jerry a space to show off his art and a studio to make his art. But one thing I really kind of connected with this movie as well is in college, I took an intro to painting class. So I, I really loved that. I was awful at it, but I really loved just learning the process of painting and having that patience and looking at, you know, darkness and light and kind of reevaluating the way you kind of look at the world was really fascinating for me. And I felt kind of related to Jerry in that way. And the way he kind of like looks and talks about painting and the way the cinematography kind of depicts, especially in the very end depicts paintings as well. But God, is it so frustrating to watch Jerry paint in this movie because <laughs> it is so bad. Like they don't even remotely try to make it look realistic. And there's yeah. this like really fun montage of him painting after he gets his studio And it's just ridiculous. Like, he just squirts like a blob of paint, mixes it real quick, and then it's just like applying so much paint to like a painting that's clearly already finished that he's just like applying a layer of color over something that is like clearly like a mix of mo- yeah. it is just so painful to watch especially after having that like experience of like how long it really takes and the minor details add up in a painting like I don't even know if you noticed this or oh just no me. well
2: one of the I did write down one point I'm like is Jerry a good painter
1: <laughs> well I I think so. I mean, like yeah. the paintings that you see, like they're really beautiful. But like, I just thought the actual like production of showing him being a painter was like really poorly yeah. done. It,
2: it, and again, it's supposed to be this is Gene Kelly. Here's the wow factor. It's it's Gene Kelly. But I, I also like the motif of painting because they do a really good job of using picture frames throughout the movie Definitely, to
1: yeah, mirrors, like, picture frames. yeah To
2: that. like to show off. And they do a really good, you know, especially in the ballet. Number two. uh give you know, reference and and and, to, and say that a lot of this came from French artists and, and homages to that. But yeah, Jerry's not a great painter, but I don't think that really necessarily matters because it's not, it's not what really... I mean, it drives the plot in some aspect because he's supposed to be a painter, but it's not about how good he is. He's just supposed to be this struggling artist, which is supposed to be what a painter is. Someone who's struggling is supposed to create something beautiful and art out of their own experiences. So... I think it's time, unless there's anything
1: else that you want to jump on, to talk about the grand finale and the ballet. Yeah, we're about to do our ballet, right? Yeah, we're about to dance, and you guys can just hear us In tap theory. dancing. <laughs> our Gene Kelly tap dance. Which, tap, 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 tap. tap. God damn Okay, actually, before we move on, <laughs> excluding the final ballet, which is a 17-minute ballet with, with only music and dancing and amazing sets, before we get to that, I want to know what is your favorite song or performance or if there are two separate things. So – I'll go through them real quick. We have the By Strauss. We got I Got Rhythm, which is something we didn't really hit on too much. You know, it's uh, Gene Kelly dancing with a bunch of kids. It's really fun and colorful, and he's getting all these French kids to learn English. It's a really adorable song. Tra-la-la-la. Love is Here to Stay. I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise. Uh, we have the Concerto by Gershwin in F. Uh, it's Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, and we'll exclude the, the final ballet. What was your favorite song or performance or if they're two separate things, let me know.
2: I liked uh I got rhythm. I, I like that one the most. I think that's cause it's the it's kind of the only number where I mean, it should there are other numbers that showcase Gene Kelly, but it's the first one that's like this is Gene Kelly and the way he his dancing is really great, his tap dancing is awesome, his interaction with the kids is really, you know, sweet and endearing, uh and, and teaching them how to say different English words and I, I just love that whole interaction, and he just did some really great dance movements. He did he did this like train movement with the with the tap dancing and like yeah. moving his arm. So, so it, cool! It, it's really cool. And then all I can think about is the fact that Chris Evans is supposed to portray him. I'm like, man, I really hope Chris Evans can pull this off.
1: God, I mean, we could talk about that for a moment. I just think that's an awful
2: casting. I just is for- it because I think it actually might be good casting if they're not asking Chris Evans to dance, or if he's gonna dance, maybe he's a really good dancer.
1: I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking about like how unique Gene Kelly looks, and, and again, he's got that like really feminine touch to him, where he's just like soft, beautiful skin, but he's got like that manly, also rugged aspect to him. Not not like a not like an insanely. He's, he's manly athletic. Man, he's know? like he's, he has his athletic body, insanely
2: awesome ass. Yeah. Like, just a, a wonderful <laughs> hey, ass. on Hey, the Chris man. Evans, that is America's ass. That is
1: America's <laughs> ass. So you better not fuck with Gene Kelly's ass, yeah. but. Yeah, that's an interesting casting. I, I could, I mean, Chris Evans is a great actor. I just don't know if he could pull it off. I, I really don't know. That's yeah, something I, we'll have to figure out.
2: We'll have to see. in a lot of there's a lot of these movies coming out with different actors portraying older ones, which is just Hollywood. Oh, and an ability to show good content and it's, new. It's interesting for us, though, like getting to see their
1: performances back in the day and then now seeing how people kind of like perceive that. And yeah, taste. but like,
2: but why do we need that when we just watch the original? We stuff? don't.
1: You're, you're very correct. We don't. But let's say this. If if someone watches this Gene Kelly biopic, whatever the fuck it's called, something ridiculous. I can't think of a good witty name. An American
2: singing in the rain. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's probably going to be referencing singing in the rain, right? It has to be. Yeah. Like, if someone watches that, they don't know that much about movies. Maybe they're a casual moviegoer and they're like, wow, this is really cool. Like, let me watch Singing in the Rain. Let me watch An American in Paris. Like, I think it's worth that biopic, whether it's shit or not. I think it's worth that to exist in order to kind of convince people to go back and watch it because not many people are like us who are just like going to spend hours and hours like studying and looking at these old films. And some people just need a bigger push. So I think that's awesome. I mean, think about how many people like didn't know who Queen, like the band Queen was until they saw that shit movie. (laughs) And then it's an Academy award winning (laughs) movie. You watch yourself. (laughs) And then they were like, let me go check out their music and now it's their favorite band. You know, that has to be a good amount of people and, I think it should exist, but tangent aside, yeah, tangent back to aside. American in Paris. Yeah, let's, let's talk
2: about the ballet. The American in Paris ballet sequence, which you have alluded to, was 17 minutes long. It is, when you think 17 minutes long, you must be like, oh my God, like this fucking thing must be... It goes by so quick. It goes by so quickly. It's weird, honestly. It, it's like weird how fast it goes by. It does, and there's like, mo- and I've seen it now three times, and each time I feel like I've... I feel like I'm watching a different performance you each time. More and more, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating because I think the reason why it goes by so quickly is because the way they they like know exactly when to end it and transition to a musical number. And I don't know if we have the artist written down here, but each kind of act of this ballet is is representing kind of the artistic style of, of a famous painter. And oh, I have it. Oh, well, let me hear. It, ben. Let me so hear they
2: it references it references Monet Renard Renoir when oh my god i cannot speak french tonight or ever Utrio, there's van gogh but he's dutch you have rousseau you have duffy and a few other ones so it, yeah so it, it it promotes the the big french painters and and styles that people are accustomed to and and i think that's like a really cool nod because you think of paint uh, painting me as the first visual medium and so now we have art and we have color cinematography being used in this, so now really everything can pop and i I really like these like homages to the different artists throughout the set pieces, which just is really stunning set design and art direction throughout the throughout the film and especially the sequence but yeah, so this it opens in this little this huge ballet it one it starts with uh there's like this torn painting or sketch that Jerry had done that then magically comes back together and then the the ballet starts and this red rose that he picks up and Again, and immediately his movements are just so, it's so wild, but so like commanding. And it's really fascinating to watch.
1: And I think it's definitely intentional is that uh, before the scene goes and they kind of like say their last goodbyes, they're both at a party that is a black and white party. And I think this is very intentional that this is supposed to be black and white because we're about to be like blown away by the amount of color that we get from this entire ballet So one, I thought that was a really genius way to kind of set our tone and our palette and then immediately to kind of jump into his mind. But it's interesting. What do you think about like their kind of last moments together before we get to the ballet? Is there there enough there that you think we get like a satisfying interaction between them for their goodbyes?
2: Well, I I think it's just frustrating because I'm team Milo throughout this whole entire thing. And I'm like, he should be with Milo this whole time. And then he's still just focused on lease and yeah. it, and it's like it's like okay like I, I guess i get it but she leaves you but then we're also never satisfied because we don't get the scene between Henri and lease being like well, I want to be with Jerry. Like, we never get that Yeah, we don't get that, and,
1: and we don't really get a satisfying end to Milo either because she, Jerry's just like, yeah, I'm in love with her. That's it, Milo. Goodbye. And, like, that's the last we see of her. We don't get, like, any good satisfying end for her. Like, we don't even get, like, a fun little, like, bit or nod to, to throw out the end for her. She's just gone. Like, she's very much a character that's just used, and we don't really give much else. And, and maybe because we end with this grand ballet, there's not much time to really kind of give to her character. But I mean,
2: they had time. They decided just to do a a 20 minute ballet. You're exactly right. That's what I was going to
1: say. Like they definitely could have had another scene or two with them at the party and and really breaking it down more. But it feels like they're in a rush to get to this ballet. And it's clear this is a beautiful, beautiful ballet. And it's it's so it's man, it is one of those things where you're like, people need to see this on drugs. Like (laughs) like you need to see this. It's like phenomenal. And. As, as great as the, the Broadway Melody song, or not the Broadway Melody, the song, uh the cake a, song. A Pretty my Girl is Like a Melody. Yes. As great as that is and that whole bit and in uh, The Great Ziegfeld, it it's just doesn't compare to this, honestly. like it, They're very different. Obviously, we have color here, but this is so big and expansive, and it's really interesting because it is a ballet. There's no singing, and it's weird because every performance other than you know Gershwin's concerto it's it's been singing and dancing a combination of the two so did that really kind of feel odd to you that we don't get like another song from Gene Kelly here or did you just enjoy the, the dancing and how that kind of told the rest of our story
2: yeah well I enjoy the dancing I didn't mind the lack of singing which I think says a lot about the dancing sequence itself because I would not normally be that person so I I, I certainly found it fascinating and and it's just I think it's remarkable that they were able to pull it off, you know, the filmmakers. I mean, I was reading that it was like 44 sets on like the MGM lot. It was like half a million dollars, which for 1951, I'm sure was a lot. I mean, this movie was only made for 2.7 million. So, half a million of that being put towards just this ending sequence alone is pretty crazy. Um and and, there, and there's just so much detail put into it. There's some really great cinematography and and yeah, the the shots seem very shaky because it's not there's no like steady cam uses Uh, being used back then but man they were really going out there with how they were framing and how they were moving the camera around it felt like the camera was its own dancer and and, you know being a part of the dance itself which I I really love it it was really impressive of how they were able to pull it off with this many sets this many people dancing Um, it it was certainly cool
1: yeah I I should have mentioned this at the top but I've actually seen an American in Paris on Broadway and I found it incredibly boring I'm not that I'm not that big a fan of, of ballets and dancing and and I think I found it boring because the story is just not really interesting it's a love triangle like I'm so sick of love triangles we've seen it we've done it there's not many outcomes that are very interesting anymore at this point so in terms of someone who like loves story and characters and development I'm like not really getting that but then when we're seeing it translated in film it's like no we get so much more because now the now the sets are expansive now the camera moves now we have these awesome transitions where in this final ballet like there are some amazing uh transitions that are kind of transitioned from painter to painter and uh, like you said earlier with the, the the frame of the paintings transitions to another set and you're in like a french restaurant where like no one's moving and it really does look like a moving picture it's a really 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 phenomenal and Another connection to this movie for me is that I was like absolutely obsessed with La La Land when it came out. And I'm not that big of a fan of musicals. I think just simply because I haven't seen enough and singing in the rain and, and it's like the best kind of comparison for the two. We both have Gene Kelly and it's kind of close in time. But I love La La Land and there was something about that balance of music, of dancing, of singing, while also being a really, really interesting, very filmic story that was more than just your classic love story. And there was something I I just absolutely loved. And it's so hard now watching an American Paris and not see how La La Land like just ripped from so much of this movie.
2: Well, Damien... I mean, I found an IMDb fact that Damien Chazelle was like, yeah, we, we took a lot from It's so, from that so movie. clear. And, and almost,
1: in a way, it, it feels almost like a soft reimagining of American in Paris. Like, yes, it's based in Hollywood. It's very much uh, kind of taking this painter but instead making him the musician right instead he's making he's a combining or act- making the lead the actress trying to become an inspiring you know, actor actor exactly so you got the singing in the rain mixture in there as well later on her character goes to Paris I think to to, to land a, a role right so there's yeah. like so many of these just stories uh, that kind of align and are very similar let alone the use of obviously there's no technicolor but the use of primary colors in La La Land uh, all the women wearing those primary color dress is, like the very end sequence where we see a fantasy very much like we see in American in Paris of this man's like fantasy of what their life could be like how romantic they are together and and how much they could kind of grow and and, and be successful with each other and that is so similar to what we get at this this dancing and this ballet in the film so it's just really hard not to see and it, to me it just felt like he was like I can do that and mix all these elements but make it modern make it fresh and make it feel unique and God damn, I love that movie yeah and it made me just appreciate American in Paris even more because it's like wow like look how much this has inspired people and look how much it's kind of carried on its legacy and know, like how similar years
2: the, the idea is because the ending of La La Land and American in Paris are this whole it's this whole idea of like well, we're just going to retell you the whole entire story again yeah with like a little bit of differences and nuances but it's still the whole idea of like these two falling in love and here's their story but uh, it's
1: the opposite, and I think right. that's what makes it, like, hit so hard is that the reveal at the end is not what it, we have in American and Paris, right. which is them running to each other. You classic romance run together, reunite, and boom, end a movie. They're happily ever after. This is, like, the heartbreaking turn where it's like, no, like, that really was a fantasy. You don't get what you fantasize about. You know, life is not exactly what you plan it to be, and man, yeah, really hits home. So... When looking at an American in Paris, you're like, oh, wow, like there's so much that this movie has inspired other films with, especially La La Land is almost to me like a soft reimagining of this and singing in the rain together. But, yeah, I definitely had to get a nod out to that because it's it's so obvious when you see those two like ballet dancing sequences together that it's very much inspired.
2: Yeah, it it certainly is. And everything you said, I I couldn't agree more with. I, I think you said it really well. So my final question, I think, to wrap up this uh, dance sequence and pretty much the movie, because after this dance sequence is over, there's like a minute left, and that's when Jerry and, and least embrace and when, Hen- when Henri is like, okay, like, it actually doesn't even say it. He just kisses, Henri kisses Lise, and then Lise just runs to Jerry's arm. But was there a moment in the, the ballet sequence that you loved the most? Is there something that really stood out to you?
1: There's a really dramatic moment when they switch um they switch like the lighting and they kind of become silhouettes and that's really beautiful. But I think my favorite moment was the intimate moments of that when they're kind of dancing around the frozen fountain. If you remember that, oh, that so moment, cool. it's so beautiful and they're like dancing and everything's kind of frozen in time. I just really loved that moment. Cause it was like them finally being alone together. Now. And
2: what was cool is how the set designers made it seem like a, um, a water fountain that was flowing and they just took like plastic tubing and it looked like cotton and they just made it and they, they put it lights behind like it's it. And flowing, made, yeah. yeah. And he put some smoke. I thought that was cool. I, I really liked uh, the. There's a sequence when they're, uh, where they're all where they're tap dancing. Where there's like five guys tap dancing with with Gene Kelly, and I really loved that. And then uh, Lisa's character, she's just on her toes the whole time dancing. Like, going, and I was like, holy fuck, like those the tippy toe yeah, dancing. The, the yeah, the tippy toe, and it's like full body, like stomping on the ground movements that she's doing. And I was like, oh my god. So that that was really incredible. But I think actually. My favorite part is how it ends, because it, it widens out. It's this huge, like shot, and, it's, and I, it actually is similar to the the ending of wonderful uh, musical number, where it's this huge wide shot. So it's this whole dance. There, everyone's dancing, and then cut. Everyone disappears, and there's just Gene Kelly standing alone. And this movie does a really good job with those kind of cuts, where it, it there's a lot of stuff there, and then boom, nothing's there. And I I really like that. I think that it added to this emotion. That Jerry was probably feeling where he's like, oh, it's so beautiful and wonderful. And then, boom, it's all gone.
1: Yeah. For me, the only thing that I think would really like amplify this ending a little bit more is if the rest of the film felt more grounded in the sense of the way it looks like it very much feels like a set like this feels like an MGM backlot throughout the movie. And it doesn't really feel like you're grounded in a real city which you know to some people that that doesn't matter whatever it's a fun musical like musicals are not supposed to be realistic but to have a movie that's a little bit more grounded i'm not saying take away the dancing take away the singing but have a film that's kind of feels a little more grittier a little more down to earth and a little more realistic to then have this like grand fantasy finale would i think really make it pop and and contrast even more but i really think that's just a small like minor nitpick i think it's it's really phenomenal what they do with this last dance sequence and trying to like express how these characters could work together and how they could grow and really what their future might be. And I think this is like the best chance to show off uh, Lisa and Lise and kind of show off how just great of a dancer she is, how much she really just kind of controls the scene. And that's where she really dominates in this performance. But yeah, is there anything else you want to kind of hit on on the ballet or anything else in American Paris? No,
2: I I think we did a really good job covering it. Um, I think that I think this movie is really easy to talk about and it's a lot of fun, Um, but I think what's actually really juicy is the 24th Academy Awards.
0: The president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Charles Brackett.
3: I have no authority to speak for the industry but as president of the Academy, perhaps it is my function to report on the state of the art. And in 1951, the year under consideration tonight, the state of the art of the motion picture was extraordinarily good. It was in 1951 that motion pictures really took the measure of the new medium television. For nearly 50 years, that old necromancer, Mr. Cinema, had been spinning tails for a price. Suddenly a newcomer was whispering them free, right in people's houses, was unreeling facts as they happened, with incredible accuracy. It's possible that Mr. Cinema may have grown a little thick around the middle and a little drowsy, but suddenly he was wide awake and all muscle. Suddenly he was calling on every resource at his command. Great spectacle, superb beauty, subject matter exactly attuned to the current mood of the country, which is not a superficial or frivolous mood. The old boy was using his complete mastery of a brilliant medium for all it was worth. So the World Series was spilling into a lot of living rooms for free. Around the corner, the great Caruso and David and Bathsheba were playing, and they too were irresistible. Senator Kefauver came along with his glittering catch and on the screen was a place in the sun with its emotional truth deeper than the truth of mere fact. An American in Paris, it has been criticized that on our nominations list, there occur frequently three Broadway plays made into pictures. That is true. And they have been translated to the screen with much much less change than used to be required in the filming of a play. But before you say we have become the handmaiden of the theater, I ask you to examine the transformation which has taken place in the American theater in the last 20 years. A transformation brought about by motion picture techniques. These plays were written in excellent camera style. Fade outs, dissolves, flashbacks. Let's not get an inferiority complex when it's our own that's coming back to us. Let's be properly proud. And now, ladies and gentlemen, in looking for our master of ceremonies tonight, I'll be frank. We had difficulty in finding someone to appear. A creature whose rare talents have earned him a special place, not only in motion pictures, but in international show business. The same unspoiled kid from Brooklyn, Danny K. (laughs) I am utterly overcome at the honor of your having asked me here
0: tonight. I. I am ever so grateful, isn't this wonderful? All this fuss about a one foot statue. So it's gold and naked. It's really wonderful though, ladies and gentlemen, because I think a great many of you know that an Oscar is not just a trophy to the winner. It means that people in your own profession have told you that in a particular year, you are the best in your profession. And to be noted the best by your own co-workers is the most exciting thing that can happen to anybody. Now I think it's possibly best illustrated by a story of a young man who joined the Navy. And by dint of hard work, he became a lieutenant, and then a lieutenant commander, and then a captain. And he wrote his mother a letter. And he said, dear mother, I've become a captain. And he went on to tell her all about how it happened and she wrote back and said, "'Darling son, I'm very proud of you. "'To me, you are always a captain. "'But tell me, to a captain, are you a captain?' (laughs) That's what the Oscar means, I think, to a great many of us in the profession. Thank you very much, sir." And now, before we tackle tonight's awards, a brief word to the winners on the subject of thank you speeches. In recent years, the Academy has been criticized for trying to cut these speeches short. Now, it is true that various subtleties have been employed in the past, like uh, trapdoors, <laughs> disappearing mites. and one year, they had an ex-blocking back from Penn State. Well, this time, the Board of Governors of the Academy has asked me to announce that there'll be no attempt to muzzle anyone. However, the rule of prudence should prevail. If you work on a picture merits an Oscar, the Academy asks that your speech be no longer than the movie itself.
1: The 24th Academy Awards were held on March 20, 1952 at the RKO Pantages Theater and awarded Oscars for Best in Films of 1951. This year's show was hosted by Danny Kaye, and this was the first year in which the Best Picture Oscar was given to the film's producers rather than to the studio that released the film.
2: Academy honorary awards were given out to Arthur Freed. He was given the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. There is uh Roshiman, which is the Japanese film, which received the best foreign language film award. When Worlds Collide received the best special effects. And then Gene Kelly was giving an honorary award for his versatility as an actor, singer, director, and dancer and specifically for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film for an American in Paris.
1: I found it interesting that the best special effects was a film called One Worlds Collide, and is essentially about how everyone is leaving Earth because a star is about to destroy the planet, which is very similar to this past year's Don't Look Up on Netflix. Which might be an Oscar contender. Which might be an Oscar contender. I think it will definitely be nominated in a category here and there. But yeah, I just found that fascinating, like how similar those two descriptions are. I mean, it's a meteorite, it's a star, whatever. They're not the exact same thing, but it's really similar. And it's almost about the the more scientific aspect of it or them trying to build an arc and get off the planet. But I'm like, what a weird coincidence. Like we just keep telling the same stories over and over, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, we definitely do. And I like to make this note about Gene Kelly where you're like, wow, it goes to show how... You know much he contributes to the film, and he's not just you know any old performer there to take orders. And I liked you brought that up, and you post this question in the notes, like you know how many actors have won honorary awards, and have we seen it before? And when I was looking at it, I was like, huh, why? Like we, I feel like we have, and it only took me one second to find out when I looked up honorary awards, and because the first one ever given out at the first Academy Awards was to Charlie Chaplin in *The Circus* for his acting, writing, directing, right. and producing *The Circus*. And to me, I was like, huh. So the, the Academy Awards from the beginning of its history is known for giving Oscar honorary awards to people for who are like, you are too good for this art form. You're too good this year. Like if we actually were have allowed you to be in a competitive category, you would have just won and swept. So to me, this says that if, if they if they had nominated Gene Kelly, spoiler, they don't in this year, that Gene Kelly probably would have won for best actor.
1: That's it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I do remember there was another actor who is who won twice. Who was that? I'm blanking on it.
2: Well, uh Harold Russell got an honorary award. That's why because yeah. they didn't think he would win for the actual award, right? But but that was more for the fact that like hey, here's this veteran. He he yes. played it it's his first time acting True, really emotional yeah. role. But this is like specifically like Gene Kelly, you for versatility in actor, singer, director, and dancer. Like just those alone, you're like, Okay, you're you're too good for this. You're yeah, I too good think for that us.
1: it really ties back to our auteur conversation and it shows like how much Gene Kelly really kind of contributes to his films. He's not just a a person to portray a character. He's very much there on set. Like the, the quotes from some people in the film were talking about how Gene Kelly was a really nice guy, but he was very strict. He was very He almost like became. He was like the second director in a way. Yeah. Well, there uh, on this film,
2: there are supposedly times where he would direct sequences because uh, Vincent Minnelli was going through his divorce with Judy Garland, (laughs) which in and of itself is just fascinating. It's
1: the most Hollywood sentence (laughs) ever.
2: I know, but it it it, it's cool because yeah, like Gene Kelly got to show off like so many talents, and it's like Oscars, like dude, like well, we'll we'll get to best actor because there's a very interesting thing that happens, but like hey you don't have to give an honorary reward. Like if you think he's the best, give it to him. Like he, that, that's what it's for. It's for the people you think is deserving of it.
1: Yeah. That's, it's really interesting too. And it makes you think like, why don't we see more of these? Like, why don't we see more of these where it's like everyone's every fucking year says, give it to best stuntman. Where's our best stuntman. Where's our best uh, like CG animation, you know, motion capture best performance. Ensemble, like, yeah. Where's like, our best ensemble? Like, best ensemble is a little bit different because it's much bigger grander award for multiple people but just giving it to someone
2: for casting i mean like it's still a job yeah
1: definitely but if we're narrowing it down to an actor though like this past year with the whole like kerfuffle with uh, chadwick boseman like they could have just gave him an honorary award for how much his character of black panther and how much he's kind of given to the film industry as a whole or anthony hopkins could have just received
2: the honorary award (laughs) but i mean and i'm not saying either way but you know at a certain point, you have to start, like, I think, and we're going to, and I can already feel like it's going to happen with this year's Oscars, where it's like, we have to stop giving lifetime achievement awards, and let's give it to the people that actually deserve it.
1: Yeah, let's make an Academy honorary award. And who who does the motion capture that you think deserves an honorary award? Oh, my
2: God. Well, I mean, we'll get there for Lord of the Rings, <laughs> but Andy Serkis' performance as Gollum is the top. That's that's what I'm saying. That's a
1: perfect example of like using this honorary award where people.
2: It's a joke. It's a joke that they give honorary awards when they should just like just give them the freaking award. The
1: actual award. Yeah. Yeah. Because some people, if they did this, they'd be like, oh, that's bullshit. You're just now making up awards to give people. But. And maybe that's why they've kind of Dwayne and, and not done it in recent years. Yeah, but.
2: I, I, you know, it's funny you say Duane because imagine if, like, The Rock, they're like, hey, we're going to give you an honorary award because you were in the biggest blockbuster, <laughs> like, blockbuster this Red year. Red Notice was amazing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm just using that as an example. I I'm, It's hard to think of, like, a specific, way, or specific one in, like, the last few years uh, that it could have worked for. I guess maybe if you think about the La La Land Moonlight thing where it's like maybe we should have given La La Land more of an honorary award or or we should have, or the other way around we should give Moonlight a more honorary award, uh, but also they did give it to the movie that probably was the better movie overall. So it, it it it's a totally weird thing. It's really hard to balance out. But when you see a specific honorary award for Gene Kelly for all of these things and he still doesn't get a, an acting nomination, it's eerily similar similar to Charlie Chaplin at the first Academy Awards. And it's like, come on, what are we doing here? Just give it to the people who deserve it.
1: Best Film Editing goes to William Hornbeck for A Place in the Sun. Hornbeck was nominated four times for the Academy Award for Best Film Editing, but this is his only win. Other credits include It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, Giant from 1956, and I Want to Live from 1958. Hornbeck was also one of the original members of the American Cinema Editors. And this is an Honorary Society of Film Editors, which was founded just the previous year in 1950. And another thing to note here in Best Film Editing, we also have An American in Paris, which was edited by Adrian Fazan. So, Ben, is there anything you want to kind of... We didn't talk too much about the editing, but it's very significant. There's something truly worthy here, and I think Adrian definitely deserves this award. And maybe maybe above William Hornbeck. I mean, I haven't seen A Place in the Sun, but like it is really editing really kind of seals the deal on American in Paris right? yeah
2: I I love the editing I wish we did have more time to talk about it but yeah I, I thought the editing was great I think there were some really fascinating editing editing choices that they made specifically with they they did like different frames inside of each other the way they use picture frames the way that these like really uh really like just jarring jump cuts that like went from fullness to emptiness. I, I really liked it. And I, I think it. I would have picked it to win, but also I haven't seen the place in the sun. So it's hard to yeah really to say exactly what.
1: There's one thing I also want to note on this is that when I was in film school, I never made a music video, but I was definitely around other kids and students that were making not musicals, but music videos, right. As like their final project or thesis film, whatever it may be. And it is so people do not talk about how difficult and hard it is to edit something that has music in it because you have to match the exact take. You have to match the dancing performance. You have to match their lips to the exact song because they're not like singing it on set. It is very difficult. And I think it's really underappreciated for editors to have to do that. And especially in the large span of music videos that we have nowadays, they're just not really appreciated enough.
2: Moving on to best costume design color when two. Lori Kelly, Walter Plunkett, and Irene Sharif for An American in Paris. Uh, I wanted to mention that since uh, Best Costume Design was introduced at the 21st Academy Awards, so three ceremonies prior, so far, three Best Picture winners have taken home the award, Hamlet, All About Eve, and now An American in Paris. So now it used to be like, hey, if you want a screenplay award, you're probably going to win Best Picture. Now it's like, hey, if you win Best Costume Design, you may be winning Best Picture. So it's certainly fascinating to think about uh, that happening. Best Costume Design, Black and White, goes to Edith
1: Head for A Place in the Sun. This is Head's fourth Academy Award in the last three ceremonies, and she previously won last year for All About Eve, Samson, and Delilah, and The Heiress.
2: Best Cinematography Color goes to Alfred Gilkes and John Alton for An American in Paris. This is Gilk's first and only career Oscar after predominantly working on sound films in the 1920s. And this is Alton's first and only career Oscar. He And he was actually the first Hungarian-born person to win in the cinematography category. John Alton did more of the ballet photography, as he is credited. But the cinematography in this movie is absolutely beautiful. It's not the best cinematography I think that we've seen, but it's pretty damn good.
1: Yeah, like I said, I haven't really seen too many MGM musicals, but for me, this felt like it just it had that style it had that unique you know moving crane like cinematography like kind of dancing along with the actors and the performers while also kind of getting the whole picture like ending the big musical act with the big wide shots and kind of seeing these big beautiful sets that they built and it's kind of amazing that this was his first I think it was his first or second film that he shot in color which is unbelievable because the Technicolor like is insane in this movie. Yeah, it, it It is mind blowing. I like need to see this projected on film.
2: So I'm not saying that like, I, I think Gone with the wind cinematography is better than this, but in terms of the colors, which one do you think works more? Cause now this is 12, this is 12 years after uh, gone with the wind. So some of the tech and color has definitely improved since.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is cheating. Like this film, it just goes out of its way to like show off these primary colors that you can't really compare it. Like uh, it, Gone with the Wind is very stylistic, but it has those big pops of colors, the orange, the reds that kind of really like pop in throughout the film. But it's very much trying to show the, the South and, and the green and the fires of the South and not really be as exaggerated. And with all these uh, big you know, elaborate sets that have all these like pops of color. So this, if you're really looking for a color, if you're really looking for like the pop of that musical bright colors, then, yeah, I would have to go with an American Paris. Best Cinematography, Black and White, goes to William C. Meller for A Place in the Sun. This is Meller's first of two career Oscars, and he would later win in 1959 for The Diary of Anne Frank.
2: Best Art Direction Color went to An American in Paris, Art Direction by Cedric Gibbons and E. Preston Ames, Set Decoration by Edwin B. Willis and F. Gleason. Gibbons, a name we have heard many times before. This is his eighth of 11 total Academy Awards in the Art Direction category. And even though we've heard his name many times, this is his only win in a Best Picture production. Ames is his first of two Academy Awards, including a win for the 1958 Best Picture winner, Gigi. Willis is fifth of eight Academy Awards, and Gleason, first of four total Oscars, including winning for Gigi 1958.
1: That's fascinating that this is the first Best Picture he won. And at this point with eight wins, he's going to be the he's got to have the most Academy Awards in anyone. Right.
2: 1952. I would have to do a deep dive, but probably at this point. Yeah, I'd have to say. C- yeah. Who else? Unless Maybe Walt I mean Walt Disney got a bunch, but that's Walt Disney. Oh, that's bullshit. That's cheating. Yeah, that it, it's, it's cheating. It is 100% cheating. <laughs> Explo- exploiting
1: the work of all those people. to yeah. get an Oscar does not count. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> oh, man. Such good animation, though. Best Art Direction, Black and White, goes to Art Direction by Richard Day and Set Direction by George James Hopkins for A Streetcar Named Desire. This is Day's sixth of seven Academy Awards, which includes How Green Was My Valley in 1941 and On the Waterfront in 1954. This is Hopkins' first of four Career Academy Awards. And I mentioned it before as what the kind of head-to-head competition was for An American in Paris, and it might be A Streetcar Named Desire.
2: Just before we get a little bit further, have you watched or seen a production of A Streetcar Named Desire? Wow, I was saving this for the podcast, but I just watched it this week. Let's go. Thank you. I'm <laughs> so glad you saw it. We'll, we'll talk about that more. But Which
1: is fascinating. We'll definitely talk about it more, and it's a fascinating movie compared to uh, An American in Paris. Yeah,
2: we'll bring up another movie that I watched specifically for this uh, podcast when we get there. But yeah, oh, that's also the art direction, I just to kind of stop for a second, I love A Streetcar Named Desire. The... The design of that movie is.
1: It's the house. Like the house is iconic. It's so cool. I've seen the movie once. I've seen like multiple scenes from it in school. And yeah, the house is like so iconic and it's it, you can like it's built so weird with all these different side rooms and, and, and like things are not always like closing and, yeah. yeah it's really odd but it's like it really adds and it is a character in the film it's really interesting it adds to the brokenness of the people in it but anyways
2: moving on we are moving on to best sound recording goes to the great caruso to douglas Shear. Shear his seventh and final academy award win he previously won five times in the best sound category twice in Best Visual Effects. He worked on the sound and special effects for the 1942 Best Picture winner Mrs. Miniver and special effects on The Wizard of Oz.
1: Best song goes to In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening from Here Comes the Groom music by Hoagy Carmichael and lyrics by Johnny Mercer.
0: In the
3: Cool, cool, cool of the evening How long we'll be there in the cool, cool, cool of the evening. Better save a check when the party's get the glow on.
0: Singin fills the air in the, the shag of the night, the night when the doings are right, but well, you can tell 'em we'll be
1: there. This is a film directed by Frank Capra and starring Bing Crosby and Jane Wyman, based on a story by Robert Riskin and Liam O'Brien. The film is about a foreign correspondent who has five days to win back his former fiance, or he'll lose the orphans he adopted well that sounds insane i Uh, know right i need to see this movie that sounds absolutely wild this is carmichael's only career win this is mercer's second of four academy awards including moon river from breakfast at tiffany's
2: yeah i uh i think it's actually a little fascinating that there's no nomination for any song from an american in paris i know it's based on the george gershwin music and the oscars never make sense of how they nominate things (laughs) but it's like how are like this is original music for the movie is like all this like how i don't know none of it was it wasn't nominated so what do i know moving on though to best scoring of a musical picture that goes to an american in paris to johnny green and soul chaplin the only best picture oscar nominee that year to also be nominated for best scoring of a musical picture
1: it's interesting we have alice in wonderland and the Great Car- Caruso and The Showboat, which I've actually heard was is a pretty interesting, fun movie. Yeah, I mean, what what can we say that we have in our... We've broken down almost every musical act in this movie. I mean, the music is great in this film. It, it doesn't always directly hit on uh, progressing the plot, but when it does, it really does, and it's really wonderful
2: and, and sweet. I just want to say, maybe this should have been best scoring of a musical picture based on adapted work, because George and Ira Gershwin, I mean... How are you not getting a nomination here? I mean, it's based off of your music, but that's neither here nor there. John, take it away. Yeah, I'm sure they wanted that Oscar
1: as well. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Franz Waxman for A Place in the Sun. This is Waxman's second consecutive Oscar after previously winning for Sunset Boulevard the previous year. So I've got to put A Place in the Sun on my watch list. It is appearing all over the 24th Academy Awards.
2: Best live action short subject, too real, went to Nature's Half Acre. The film was produced by Walt Disney. Oh my God, coming up again. (laughs) As part of the True Life Adventure series of nature documentaries, and this was paired with Alice in Wonderland during its original theatrical run. You got to imagine
1: that all of his Oscars are somewhere in Disneyland, right? Offices in Disneyland. It's
2: probably, yeah, it's probably in Disneyland somewhere.
1: Yeah. You probably can't see them if you're in like that exclusive Disney club. I,
2: maybe you can see them. I have. a I think that the Academy Museum has the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs statues. Oh, that's I adorable. think I've seen photos of that.
1: Well, we're gonna have to make a trip to go out there.
2: Maybe we'll have to do just a podcast outside, of there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> walking around, recording. Yeah, then get us getting kicked out. Oh my god! Best live action
2: short subject one reel goes to World of Kids. Best documentary short subject goes to Benji. Directed by Fred Zinnemann, who would go on to win for Best Director for the 1953 Best Picture winner, From Here to Eternity, and the 1966 Best Picture winner, A Man for All Seasons. So, dipping his toes in documentary short subjects and getting his first Oscar here.
1: Best Short Subject Cartoons goes to The Two Musketeers. Woo! Another one Another for one. Tom and Jerry. This is the sixth Academy Award for a Tom and Jerry series. Best Documentary Feature went to Kon Tiki. I also have to mention that the other nominee for this was I Was a Communist for the FBI. (laughs) I gotta find that. (laughs) There's a lot of communist stuff going on. Oh man. Yeah, tis the time, right? Post-World War II. we're, We're not trusting nobody around. No. Best Story? goes to Paul Dean and James Bernard for seven days to noon. This is Dean's only Academy Award and he is best known for Goldfinger and the planet of the apes sequels, as well as murder on the Orient express.
2: best screenplay goes to a place in the sun, Michael Wilson and Harry Brown from an American tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. This is Wilson's only career win. He would go on to be blacklisted though from Hollywood for being a communist. While he was blacklisted, he did contribute to different screenplays, including the 1957 Best Picture winner, The Bridge on the River Kwai, and the 1962 Best Picture winner, Lawrence of Arabia. And he also worked on Planet of the Apes, so some Planet of the Apes uh, threads coming here. And this is Brown's only career win. Best story and screenplay. Not to be be (laughs) confused with just best story, because the Oscars would never confuse us like this. No,
1: no, never. Goes to Alan J. Lerner for An American in Paris. This is the only Best Picture Oscar nominee of the year to be also nominated for original screenplay. This is the first Best Picture winner to win a Best Original Screenplay Award. So far, 18 total Best Picture winners have won this award versus 42 for the Adapted Screenplay Award. This is Learner's first of three Academy Awards, including best adapted screenplay and best original song for 1958's GG.
2: Yeah, fascinating that this movie wins a best original screenplay. One, it's the first time it's happened for any best picture winner. And not many film not many best picture winners that have won a screenplay award have won original. They've mostly been adapted. So that says a lot to me about how best picture winners are treated and how films that are gonna be nominated for best picture are treated, but We said it before, like this film doesn't have like this like script and dialogue that you really sink your teeth into. I think it's more just like, hey, here's a really good, cute, fun, quick story that everyone can love.
1: Yeah, I find it really interesting comparing this. I mean, not too deeply, but just going from all about Eve directly into this. It's like these these movies couldn't be. Any different, like they're so drastically different. Where we want to really prioritize the dialogue and the characterization and get to know the weird, complex relationships everyone has here. While this film is so surface level, and that's not a bad thing, I think someone would love All About Eve versus someone loving an American in Paris. I just think they're very different movies, and that's why cinema is so great. Ben,
2: best supporting actress goes to Kim Hunter for a streetcar named Desire as Stella Kowalski. This is Hunter's first and only career win. She gained notable fame recreating her role for the 1947 Broadway production of A Streetcar Named Desire. She had joined her co-stars Marlon Brando and Carl Malden, as well as others to become the first members of the Actors Studio, which was created in 1947. Hunter was blacklisted from film and television in the 1950s, amid suspicions of communism in Hollywood during the era of the House Un-American Activities Committee, Another communist that Hollywood loves to go after for some reason. She's also known as playing Zira in the Planet of the Apes and the two sequels after that. So this is the third time right now that Planet of the Apes has brought up again. I love Planet of the Apes. I love how this thread of Planet of the Apes is weaving through itself and at the twenty-fourth Oscars. So it is. It's certainly fascinating. And Kim Hunter, she was great in the Streetcar Named Desire.
1: Yeah, she was really fascinating. Played such a complex kind of such a sad I mean the whole film is so sad but yeah I don't have to I don't want to go too much into that film because I want to save it for best motion picture but moving on to best supporting actor we have Carl Malden for a Streetcar named desire as Harold Mitch Mitchell this is Malden's only career win and first of two career nominations he was nominated for best supporting actor in 1954 as best picture winner on the waterfront and he also served as president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences from 1989 to 1992. Really fascinating. I mean, to be a, a performer that then kind of takes over as the president like years and years and years and years and years, and years later. I mean, he must have been in his like seven years or maybe even 80s when he was the president by that time. But anything to kind of hit on for Carl Malden?
2: Well, I think I want to talk more about him when we do talk about on the waterfront because I actually like his performance a little bit more in that in on the waterfront, but he's still great in a streetcar. So
1: yeah, I, I don't really know the other nominees here to really kind of go off of too much. It's an interesting character. I, I don't know if there's really enough there to really go all the way and say best supporting actor, but he's a really interesting complex character like
2: most of the characters in a streetcar named desire. Best actress goes to Vivian Leigh. For a Streetcar Named Desire as Blanche Dubois. This is Lee's second Career Academy Award after previously winning for her powerhouse performance as Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Lee's performance in A Streetcar Named Desire is the sixth longest by Best Actress at 1 hour, 33 minutes, and 4 seconds. If you can remember, I talked about how she gave the longest performance as Scarlett O'Hara, which was over two hours, so... Just really a big powerhouse uh, performer for Lee, and I I just have to read so much. I know I said a lot about her in Gone with the Wind, but there's some more, I think, to be said. So, after 326 performances, Lee had finished her run in the London production of Streetcar, and she was soon assigned to reprise her role as Blanche Dubois in the film version of the play. Her reverent and often body sense of humor allowed her to establish a rapport with Marlon Brando, but she had initial difficulty in working with director Ilya Kazan, who was displeased with the direction that Olivier had taken in shaping the character of Blanche? Kazan had favored Jessica Tandy and later Olivia De Havilland over Lee, but knew she had been a success in the London stage as Blanche. He later commented that he did not hold her in high regard as an actress, believing that she had a small talent. As work progressed, however, he became full of admiration for the greatest determination to excel of any actress I've known. She'd have crawled over broken glass if she thought it would help her performance. Lee found the role grueling and commented to the Los Angeles Times, I had nine months in the theater of Blanche DuBois, and now she's in command of me. Tennessee Williams commented also that Lee brought to the role everything I intended and much that I've never dreamed of. Lee herself had mixed feelings about her association with the character. In later years, she said that playing Blanche DuBois tipped me over into madness, which a lot of people have talked about that this role in Streetcar on the stage in the film and, you know, she dealt with bipolar later in life, actually early in her life. And, and then it really overcame her later in life. That uh, This is the film that kind of tipped her over the edge. And which is a sad thing because her performance in, in this film is, is it's it's amazing and it's so powerful. But just to know that she went through so much struggles to do it, uh, it is also just really sad. But I, I don't think I can say enough about Vivian Lee. I, I know every time she comes up, I just want to just I want to do a whole podcast about her.
1: Yeah. The Lee podcast her performance is like mesmerizing in this movie it's like so hard to take your eyes off and she's bouncing off the wall it's like mentally like all over the place and it's just fascinating to see and yeah I, I had that same thought immediately like it's so hard not to think about how kind of sad and depressing and think about people like Keith Ledger where it's like the rule it's hard to know like these inner lives of these actors but it's so easy for us as viewers and watchers to just be like yes like that is what led them to this and this and this without even knowing any of their personal life, but there is a part of acting where you kind of lose yourself and you can see it in her performance where it's like, this isn't Vivian Lee anymore. She's like completely lost and gone in this role. And, and it's like a magnificent characterization of this broken woman. it's, it's really, 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 really phenomenal. And maybe one of the best performances I've seen yet in any uh, nominated movie so far. Best actor goes to Humphrey Bogard for the African queen as Charlie Allnut. This is Bogart's first and only career win of three total nominations, including Casablanca from 1943 and The Kane Mutiny from 1954. Nearly everyone in the cast developed dysentery except Bogart and the director John Huston, who subsisted on canned food and alcohol. Bogart said, All I ate was baked beans, canned asparagus, and scotch whiskey. Whenever a fly bit Huston or me, it dropped dead. Bogard resisted Huston's insistence on using real leeches in a key scene where Charlie has to drag his steam launch through an infested marsh, and reasonable fakes were employed. Despite the discomfort of jumping from the boat into swamps and rivers and marshes, the African Queen apparently rekindled Bogard's early love of boats. When he returned to California, he bought a classic mahogany Hacker Croft runabout, which he kept until his death promising his friends that if he won, his speech would break the convention of thanking everyone in sight. Bogard advised Claire Trevor, when she was nominated for Key Largo, to just say you did it all yourself and don't thank anyone. When Bogard won, however, he said,
0: it's, uh, it's a very long way from uh, the heart of the Belgian Congo to the stage of the Pantages Theater, and I'm very glad to say that it's a little nicer here than it was there. I, uh, I just want to pay a, a slight, as a matter of fact, a very big tribute to Mr. John Houston and Ms. Catherine Hepburn uh, because they helped me to be where I am now. Thank you very much.
1: Despite the award and its accompanying recognition, Bogart later said, the way to survive an Oscar is never to try to win another one. Too many stars win it and then figure they have to top themselves. They become afraid to take chances. The result, a lot of dull performances and dull pictures. You gotta love Bogart. I mean, he is absolutely amazing. The African Queen was Bogart's first starring Technicolor role. Bogart was the last man born in the 19th century to win a leading role Oscar. And in 1999, the American Film Institute selected Bogart as the greatest male star of classic American cinema.
2: So I alluded to this before. I watched The African Queen for this podcast because I've never seen it before. I knew it was Bogart's only performance. Have you ever seen The African Queen? No, I really wanted to watch that movie forever. It's alright, so I won't try and spoil too much then, but it's not this like really great performance that he gives. And I'm saying this and not and not to disparage the movie. I think the movie's actually fun and, and I think it's actually it's a really easy watch, and I, and I think that it, it it's cute. That's what it always seemed to be, you know. I, yeah,
1: I, I just remember seeing posters everywhere, and I'm like, that just looks like a fun adventure. You know? Yeah,
2: I think you would like. I think you would like it. It's like a fun little adventure uh, movie, and has some really cool like actiony parts in it. That, and I think you would appreciate it. But I want to bring this up because because this was more, this has been more looked at as a lifetime achievement award, and we said it like, you know, Bogart probably should have won for Casablanca. Yeah, certainly for, for in 1943. And what makes this even, you know, harder to really fully understand is because, one, Gene Kelly isn't nominated here. So, and we talked about before how he probably should have been, and he probably would have won if he had been. But what's even more, like, what the hell, is Marlon Brando not winning this? And Marlon Brando, so Marlon Brando would have joined his three other castmates for all winning an Oscar, which never has never happened before. It, it, the closest that and, and it. And so Brando not winning, it's the only opportunity that a film had to win all four acting categories. Only Streetcar and Network from 1976 have won three of the four. So no film has ever won more, obviously, because there would have been four out of four. So only those two have won three out of four. And a lot of people look at this like, hey, Marlon Brando should have probably won this for Streetcar. And like, when I watched Streetcar, I was... I was mesmerized, and I love him in On the Waterfront, which he eventually wins, and obviously in The Godfather, he wins, and, and that's another great performance. But you're watching Streetcar, and you're like, oh, my God, this this young guy is just commanding the screen like it's nothing, and and I'm a big Sopranos fan, and I'm like, is this fucking Tony Soprano or something? Like, it is all the, the exact movements, and, and also just a, another tangent, Jane Scandolfini, I think he played uh, Stanley Kowalski on a Broadway production of it. As well like early in his career so there's that connection to it but uh, bringing it back it's like like this guy is commanding the screen so well and is you and all the other actors around him are i think they were lifted because of him because of how good his performance was so now to have bogart winning it it's like is this just a slap in the face to brando because you're the new kid on the block and bogart deserves it i mean clearly a streetcar there was something about it that people loved about it, but why not give it to Brando? And especially after watching The African Queen, I'm like, okay, this is like a good movie, but this is not the powerhouse performance that Brando gives. Part of me makes it,
1: part of me makes it feel like that this is only the case because of like the actual character that he plays, Stanley, and and just how kind of vile and disgusting he is, and. I don't think that matters. Well, I'm trying to think and compare it to like the previous films that we've seen. Like, did um, I'm blanking on his name from Mutiny. From um, well, he won. He oh, wins, Charles Lawton. Does he win Best Supporting Actor? Right? No, we talked about it. there was he no doesn't. Best Supporting so Actor. I've, yeah, at the time, right? Yeah,
2: there was no Best Supporting Actor. If, just, he, if there was, he wouldn't won.
1: I just feel like there's leverage with the Academy voting for characters that they just don't like. Like he's very much the villain of that movie, right? it's it's it might be just too ahead of its time that movie is like so dark and just they probably just didn't even know what to make of it honestly and I think just giving the noms is the the group of people that like saw that it was way ahead of its time and they just really wanted to recognize the work and their performances and yeah maybe it's because it's a lifetime achievement award I want to ask you since you've seen the African Queen like and the way Bogart describes changing his performances and not being afraid to take risks, like is Bogart just kind of doing his classic kind of Casablanca cool tough guy? No, or it, is he different in that movie? Oh yeah, yeah.
2: I'm not saying it's a bad performance. Like he's definitely good in it, and if he was nominated, I would have been no, like totally fine with it. He won a different year. Mm-hmm. I would have been fine with it. I think that he's, I you know, I I think that I think that he gives like a a very fine performance, and I think it's a fine movie. But it is nowhere close to what Brando does. So it just feels so it's one of those things and it's something that I don't like about the modern day Oscars where they give out these awards to these actors or actresses who haven't won for years. They give it to for like, oh, well, here you go. Here's your Oscar now. And it's like, give it to the people who deserve it. And uh, I mean, I can talk about that for hours, but my point will never be heard probably by the Oscars because back to the honorary award. Yeah. But but that would have been an interesting thing if Gene Kelly and Marlon Brando had gone up together. Because if Gene Kelly had won, would I still be saying this? I don't know. I probably wouldn't be. I'd probably be like, okay, I get it. But Bogart, I'm just like, okay, like another year would have been fine. But not that, that, that doesn't make any sense. So neither here nor there. But let's move on to best director. It goes to George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. This is Stevens' first of two Best Director wins, including Giant, from 1956, and he also received the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in 1953. Among his most notable films include Swing Time, The More, The Merrier, Shane, and The Diary of Anne Frank. really interesting note about Stevens, he joined the U.S. Army Signal Corps and headed a film unit from 1943 to 46 under General Dwight D. Eisenhower. His unit shot footage including the only color film of the war of World War II in Europe, which remained archived for decades, documenting the Normandy landings on D-Day and, and also notably the Allied discovery of both the Duven labor camp and the Jachau concentration camp. So the fact that like Stevens like was there on the ground and, and filming, some, I, don't, I don't expect if you have seen this as someone who's Jewish, I've seen a lot of this Holocaust footage of concentration camps and maybe some of this is George Stevens that I've seen, but to place yourself and, and film that that atrocity and those horrors, must've been really heavy for him. And I'm sure it probably affected him with his own directing coming back. So now I actually do want to see a place in the sun just to see like what that movie's about. If I can get some of that feeling back from it. I mean, it's obviously not the same, nowhere even close to it. It's not what I'm saying, but just like, did he take any of that emotional baggage with him into his direction? It It would be interesting to see.
1: And it makes me think too, more about the mention of it being the only color film broad. And it's like, wow like was there a lot more color film but the soldiers died and that just never really got recovered it got destroyed uh it kind of shows like how expensive color film is at the time too and how they're like not probably even willing to risk that amount of money uh just to get kind of war footage and it's fascinating it almost makes me appreciate american in paris more that we got this big beautiful bright technicolor film when you know it's not uh not not it's much easier to make a black and white film at this time still and it's it's kind of a risk to make something so bright and expensive. And the nominees for Best Motion Picture are A Streetcar Named Desire, Quo Vadis, A Place in the Sun, Decision Before Dawn, and the winner for Best Motion Picture in 1951 is An American in Paris, Arthur Freed for Metro Golden Mayor. American in Paris is only the third musical to win Best Picture, if you include the Broadway Melody and The Great Sigfield or in our case, we're considering maybe Going My Way instead of The Great Ziegfeld. Uh An American in Paris is also the second color film to win. Obviously, 1939's Gone with the Wind and is the first film since Grand Hotel to win Best Picture without any acting nominations, as we covered previously.
2: So let's go on and give some stats and facts and numbers about An American in Paris. So An American in Paris currently holds a 96% Rating on Rotten Tomatoes of an average Rotten Tomatoes score of 8.03. And Rotten Tomatoes' top critics percentage also give it a 96 with an average rating of 7.6. Audience score gives it a 79% with an average rating of 3.93. IMDb gives it a 7.2 out of 10. Metacritic gives it an 83 and won six Oscars out of eight total nominations. John, what do you give An American in Paris?
1: I gave an American in Paris an 80 out of 100 and that may seem pretty harsh but for me it was kind of the story issues that kind of like fell down for me. Obviously we have the weird kind of sexist stuff with the difference between male and women Uh, but it just really kind of I wanted more from these characters and the final ballet is beautiful and it's stunning but does it do enough to kind of advance and tell more about our characters I wouldn't really say so. It's more of a fun fantasy. It shows that they're like fantasizing their love and exaggerating it a little bit, but it doesn't really get us anywhere other than she comes back. Do we know why she comes back? Do we know what Henri says? No, we don't know any of this. It's kind of left very vague and almost unsatisfying in a way, and the ballet almost kind of distracts you from that, and it's just showing you a lot of pretty images, which that's why it's an 80 for me this movie is really really beautiful gene kelly is amazing he really steals the show every time he's on there's beautiful sets beautiful cinematography amazing editing as we described so along with uh, rebecca wings and and you can't take it with you all at of 80 for me so all around the same range those films are for me and american in paris gets an 80 ben tell me what you rate in american in paris
2: So I dropped down my original score of an American Paris from actually I had it in the 90s. I had it in the 91 originally when I first watched it a few years ago. I absolutely fell in love with it. I think it's a beautiful looking movie. I think it's a lot of fun. But then a second time coming around to it, I dropped it down a little bit to an 85. Uh, To me, this movie, it's still good. But I think that the issues with it are the fact that it as grand and as fun as it is, it's still a little hollow for me. I think that as great as the last 17 minutes as the ballet is is it really enough to like warrant why it's there and th- and it happens a few times throughout the film when there's some numbers it's like okay that was great but like does that move the plot along is that worthy enough for its story gene kelly's great but he's probably the honestly the only actor in the film that makes it great itself so it, it's it's a fun movie i think that there are some issues with its uh, political correctness of it and i i, I think that matters a lot more now and especially when we're gonna be talking about uh, in a few episodes you know five six episodes down the line with Gigi, which is made also by vincent minnelli and also starring leslie karen where i have some issues with that because of some aspects that are also seen in this movie but the way this movie does it i think is a little bit less subtle and it it seems more appropriate even though sometimes it's like that's not so appropriate so i i struggle a little bit should i be more harsh on it like i have of other movies but also this movie from a technical standpoint, it's really good. So I settled at an 85 for me, um, which, you know, it's still pretty good. It falls below All About Eve. It falls below How Green is My Valley. You can't take it with you. Um, I think a movie that's close in rating would be Grand Hotel, which I gave an 84. So, you know, it's that B, B range where it's, like, good but not great. So our average rating so far, John, you're sitting at a 71.2 out of 24 movies and i'm sitting at a 77.04 so let's answer that age old question is an american in paris worthy of the best picture award of 1951 i would say yes just based on how
1: it kind of progresses the mgm musicals how it's so vivid and bright and colorful and it's just a great fun time at the movies what about you
2: ben I would say it is worthy as well. I think that I think that it, it, despite this movie coming out the same year as Streetcar Named Desire, I still think it's worthy of any other year probably going to come out. It's a the first full-fledged musical that we really get. You know, I know The Great Ziegfeld and Broadway Melody are called musicals, but they're not like this kind of musical. This is no. like in your face 50s like color everywhere, grand sets. The ending scene is really great. It does a lot of technical elements that I truly love. I love it when these best picture movies do something technically great where the cinematography is great the lighting is great the set design is great the acting and it's just all really great and fun and even though i gave the movie a lower rating it's still like all those aspects are, are really you know really grab your attention it's really in your face and so i truly love it so yeah i would give an american in paris a worthy rating so oh were you gonna add something there john boy so we have talked a little bit about Streetcar Named
1: Desire. We haven't seen A Place in the Sun. That seems to be another big competitor. But I'm curious, like, where do you stand between the two? Like, if you had to make this pick, Streetcar Named Desire versus American Paris, what would you give the best motion picture to?
2: A Streetcar Named Desire. Why is that? I think that that movie really, I mean, that that's my personal taste, though. My personal taste is, like, I love the play. I, I read it in college. No, I didn't read it in college. I read it in high school, I think. I don't actually remember when I, where I read it, but it was around like that older high school years, younger college years. And I loved it. And I was so fascinated by it. And then seeing the performance in it, 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 just everyone's performance in the movie is so great. And it really feels like the movie you can really sink your teeth into. But I'm not saying American Paris didn't deserve to win. If it was going up other years, it probably would still win... But this year, me, I, if I was voting, I probably would have put Streetcar, but I wouldn't have been surprised. That everyone put American in Paris as their winner. This is really
1: fascinating to me. I think if these were very recent movies, recent Oscars, I think a Streetcar Named Desire would Im- immediately be the winner. I mean, it, just looking at an easy, quick reference, obviously it relates to American in Paris as we discussed, but the La La Land Moonlight situation. Look at the really focused look into to mental health, into kind of your own personal being, you know, becoming who you are, who you think you are, disguising who you are. Moonlight is really deep personal look into a man's life. And La La Land is a really fun romantic musical about how heartbreak is also what makes love love, right? And while it's a little bit deeper and more complex than American in Paris, it's really interesting that the award ends up going to Moonlight, a much more dramatic, kind of revealing personal film. And I definitely think that's what A Streetcar Named Desire is in relation to An American in Paris. You know, like if you want to have a fun, just chill Sunday, hanging out with a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you can throw on An American in Paris and just watch Gene Kelly dance and have a fun time. If you want to like think about how your mind can break, how fragile human beings are, how like abusive people can be in relationships, so throw on a streetcar named desire and it will it might possibly break you just the way it breaks Vivian Lee in her amazing performance like they could not be two separate films it's why I love movies so much because these films are so so drastically different a streetcar named desire is like so dense everything the characters are doing is like undermining each other trying to get on top of each other physically and mentally it is so complex and manipulative but American Paris is like what you see is what you get and that's really what this film is it's about showing you showing cool images and cool movement and a great voice right So I just had to talk a little bit about the differences of the two. I think it's really fascinating. I mean, if I had to pick between one or the other, I would probably also lean A Streetcar Named Desire just because of how really that film really just does not feel like it was made in 1951. It feels so ahead of its time. It feels to show an abusive relationship that way. And in fact, these films are almost polar opposite. We have like an abusive man it's hard to say Jerry's abusive. He's not. We have a very aggressive men talking about women and undermining them. But it's all played for either jokes or just kind of subtle. This is what being a man and this is what being a woman is like in the 50s. While A Streetcar Named Desire is like, no, we will really show you what it's like to be a woman in the 1950s. We will really show you what an abusive relationship and really awful men do. And it's fascinating to see how just different these movies are. And they're both kind of held up, I think. Over time, A Streetcar Named Desire is a much more talked about film, especially with Brando and that amazing performance, especially with Vivian Lee, who's that Oscar legacy. To me, it's just fascinating how different these two movies are while also being similar in some ways.
2: I I 100% agree. And I think that, and I've said it before, after we're done with all these best picture winners, I think A Streetcar would be one of those movies that we go back to and like, hey, Maybe we'll give this our own evaluation of like this should have been worthy and this should have won itself because I think there's definitely a a conversation there. So that one is definitely high on the list. And that's not to take away from American Paris at all. There's two different movies that just happen to have come out at the same time, uh, which we see many times in Oscar history. So I think that's it for an American Paris and this episode of Worthy. John, do you have any last minute thoughts you would like to share?
3: wonderful wonderful marvelous marvelous
2: (laughs) thank you for listening i'm ben i'm john and And this this is is worthy
3: but oh my dear our love is here to stay together we Rockies may crumble, Gibraltar may tumble, they're only made of clay.
1: Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to Worthy Submissions at gmail.com. That's worthy submissions at gmail.com.